My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? Pro, Edward Snowden, Julian Assange. The cat is out of the bag. While Skynet cloaks the earth, white hats and black hats war through a web of wires. Data is the new ammunition, currency, and king. Whether Robin Hood or Captain Hook, our cyberspace is haunted by hackers, freakers, scammers, and crypto crooks. While some hack for financial gains and bragging rights, Others push back against the technocrats and internet fascist overlords, breaking the system until the system breaks them. Not every time. And today's guest, Keith Corneluck, is a storyteller who has done excellent work retelling stories about the who's who of the hacking world. I'm Mystic Mark. Thank you for listening to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and enjoy this episode with Keith it kind of goes back to that old hacker hacker thing from from the 80s is so many people are just curious and want to know more you know whether or not what he what he found was true or not if he was on a quest for knowledge he hacked into nasa because you know from a very early age gary mckinnon was obsessed with ufos and aliens. He was convinced that the United States government, and many governments, but primarily the United States government, was hiding information about aliens. And he didn't know how to get in, how to, you know, get more information. So he hacked into NASA. He basically installed a program called Remote Anywhere, which would allow that him to just log in and look at their desktop as they saw it. And he was combing through files and directories and then he started to find things, you know, it would of course take forever to download. And, you know, allegedly he found information about these aliens.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in. And with us here on the show is an award-winning podcaster, someone who I am a big fan of after listening to pretty much every episode of his podcast, his new podcast, Modem Mischief, here with us for the first time. Keith Corneluk, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Dude, it's a pleasure. Like I said, I'm not lying when I said I listen every episode because I'm a big fan of true crime material and, you know, a lot of it is really gory and focused on just this like brutal sort of niche of true crime that I really don't have any sort of interest in. So when I found your podcast, thanks to our friend William Ramsey, shout out to him, William Ramsey Investigates. I was really thrilled because I'm like, here's a bunch of content that I kind of felt starved of. Maybe I just haven't searched it out, but either way, it was uh, it was a welcome sight. You know, I listened to a lot of conspiracy podcasts and it's kind of rare that that topic comes up, but I think it should because it really touches on a lot of the things that we talk about on the show. A lot of these characters that you've spoken about in the you know subculture of hacking they kind of fit the bill for some of the more fringe conspiracy theorists too i mean obviously they take sort of some actions that i don't condone you know breaking laws and and doing things that definitely put their lives at risk but you know where did this interest start for you it's particularly hacking but true crime as well because I'm, I'm almost certain you do another show about true crime as well right the other show that I did, Dirty Detectives, it's actually a true crime parody. So it's a scripted podcast. Okay. It was fiction. It's definitely not something you should listen to in front of your children, unless you're a bad parent, then, you know, by all means, go ahead. <laughs> uh, but my interest in cybercrime stems from, you know, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, my dad was one of those guys that got a computer sort of, you know, before anyone, before it was really super mainstream. And so we were dialing into some of the same mainframes that other people were into. And, you know, I said that if I was smarter, I probably would have been a computer hacker, but I just wasn't smart enough to really hack much of anything. So instead I decided to become a storyteller. And, you know, I, I like true crime. I, I just think a lot of topics have been done ad nauseum. You know what I mean? You can only hear so many stories about Ted Bundy before, you know, I'm not going to be able to give you any really new information. And I found, I, I think that there are a lot of good cybercrime shows out there, but I don't think that, that many of them tell the story for people, for the general person to understand. And as we become more technological, I mean, technology is a part of all of our lives. It's going to become even more so. I think it's important to know about those people, you know, what they're doing on the on the dark web, the crimes that are being committed. And if you look, you know, at the, you know, the war that's going on in Ukraine right now, they are crowdsourcing hackers to help defend them on the cybercrime war landscape. So it's becoming a part that's integrated into our lives. And I also think there are a lot of fascinating stories to be told out of it. A lot of good human stories. It's guys like you and me doing crazy stuff. And I just think that that's a lot of fun. And I enjoy telling those stories. Absolutely. And I kind of have a similar story myself. I mean, I remember my first job after high school, I was working with a guy who was using the Silk Road and I was just a common stoner at the time. I didn't really understand how or why or what 
got him into that world. I had friends who were very computer savvy and there's definitely, you know, an understanding of that world from a young age growing up in, you know, early 2000s. But I remember, you know, him really like telling me, oh yeah, you should put money into to Bitcoin. And I tried to, you know, do it in the interest of like getting weed from the internet, you know, as if that could ever happen. Maybe it would have if I was a little brighter about it, but I ended up, I think I ended up putting some money in Bitcoin and then losing it. So, you know, I'm sure you've heard that story before, but yeah, it definitely, it definitely hits close home. Not only that, but I actually met Ross Ulbricht's mother last summer at a libertarian freedom festival and uh, doing what I do in podcasting. Some folks introduced me to her and uh, we had a nice conversation And I asked her, I was like, you know, do you think Ross would ever do a podcast, you know, from behind bars? Is that even possible? You know, I'm, I'm totally a novice, not a journalist. You know, I've had people on the show have interviewed inmates before. So I thought, hmm, maybe it's a possibility. And she said, you know, maybe, but it didn't seem like it was on the top of her list. It seemed like if anything, that would only endanger him further. But you did cover that in the first two episodes of the show. I really enjoyed that. Can you tell us, you know, what there is to say about the Silk Road, what you've learned and and what drew you to that case in the first place, why it was the the first episode? Well, you know, I read a book about Russ Albrecht a couple of years ago, and it is a fascinating, just from a storytelling perspective, a fascinating story to tell because there's, you know, drugs, there's intrigue, there's hired hitmen. I'm just from a storytelling perspective, it ticks really all of the possible boxes. It's a name that's familiar to a lot of people, certainly the Silk Road. And, you know, it's such a harsh sentence for what he did. You know, I mean, you could get into the debate of, you know, is, you know, does he deserve a life sentence? I personally don't think so. Clearly some laws were broken and, you know, how much money we're spending on the drug war in the United States is, I guess, a conversation for another day. But, you know, I, I just think it's I think it's so fascinating how he had this idea to create an online drug marketplace, because at the end of the day, I think you should be able to make your own decisions as well. And, you know, back then, you know, pot in particular was not looked as, you know, I can walk three blocks from my house and go get pot at a pot shop, you know, and probably throw another stone and hit another pot shop down there. So I thought what he was doing was really remarkable. Um, you know, and you look at how the government went to hunt him down and, you know, when they finally got him, how many more drug marketplaces popped up? It's literally a game of whack-a-mole. But I think the interesting story about Ross Albrecht is he started off, I think with the best intentions, you know, best, you know, best intentions possible. You know, he was a libertarian. He believed you should be able to do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting anybody else. And then somewhere along the line, he sort of got overtaken by the power of it, you know, and hired hitmen who, of course, ended up being law enforcement. And, you know, so somewhere, somehow he sort of went astray. I certainly don't think he needs to spend the rest of his lives, rest of his life behind bars because of it. Right. You know? Right. Yeah, it is definitely a heavy sentence. And as someone who's you know, spoken to his mother, it definitely, you know, feels very, uh, very personal at this point. Like they really, you know, did not feel like, let's just say this, they wanted to make an example of him. That's my thought, you know, and that's kind of what I conveyed from talking to his mother. And, and yeah, man, as somebody who grew up sort of in that 
time. I remember the internet being very open when I first got on and even more so when I was like just a, a youngster, you know, tooling around with CD-ROM games and, and AOL. But it seems from what I've learned so far from the podcast that the internet was this wild, wild west, open space, and more and more we're seeing it get locked down. So there is a very big interest at least in my imagination of like, wow, what was the internet like? You know, if only I was a little older and I could have inter interacted with it. And it is kind of obscured to the point now where you need like a tour, you need, you know, the TOR servers and all that. Like it, it's really become extremely specific and complex to interact on the internet in that way. You know, they really locked down the internet with platforms and such. So to hear stories of like the, the most recent episode, so the 414 gang, right, out in mm -hmm. Milwaukee, you know, these guys were, you know, nice kids. They were just playing around with what seemed like a merge between, you know, the early internet and like the telecom system, right, where they could literally just use an area code to figure out where they're, you know, where they were going with this computer. But give us a backstory on that one, because I, I think that's really interesting to to hear how, you know, We'll say vulnerable the internet was in those days. Yeah, the four one fours is a really interesting story because it, it's sort of the birth of cybercrime. It's these teenagers who were just curious, and that and that's the interesting thing when you're looking at hackers is a lot of them are just curious. They're looking to access information to get access to just know more. They don't necessarily have any sort of malevolent intention. And especially with the 414s, you know, these are guys that, you know, we compare them to the movie War Games from the 80s. You know, they hacked into the Los Alamos nuclear facility, but they didn't launch World War III. You know, they were looking for games. You know, other hackers like Kevin Mitnick, who was around the same time in the 80s, you know, they're just looking for information. You know, perhaps they were a little, you know, they didn't have the best social lives. You know, a lot of these kids are the, you know, typical like Stranger Things, like, Dungeons and Dragons nerds who are who are really interested in, you know, finding a, a different life online. I think that's what the 414s did. I mean, you know, they'd be driving their bikes home in Milwaukee and they'd see these gang signs on, you know, bridges like 20, the 28th Street gang in Milwaukee. And the 414s, they were the ones who ruled the telephone lines at the time. And, you know, to them, I think the punishment did fit the crime because they were caught they were apprehended and they got probation and a $500 fine for breaking into a nuclear facility and not doing any damage. You know, unlike Ross Albrecht, who's spending the rest of his life, his life behind bars, I think for the 414s, it ended up being okay. One of the other things that we mentioned in the episode is, you know, in those early days of the internet, the first online transaction was actually a drug deal. Somebody bought weed for, you know, I think it was Stanford and MIT and you know, they facilitated a purchase for, you know, like an eighth of weed or something like that. So I do think it's interesting how all of these online transactions always end up back in the same place. Mm, yeah. Interesting. It does have a sort of loop there. I think it's, it's definitely, you know, it's funny how open and like I said, vulnerable it was so easy for these kids to just go and, and literally find games. Like they were playing what we would consider like computer games on these computers all over the place because it was just something that you know at that time you couldn't just plug in whatever dot com and play a game or go on the you know massive servers that they have now and play these huge games 
It was little, you know, like what, 8-bit games that you could find mm-hmm. on computers. And also the bragging rights that came with, you know, oh, hey, we, you know, booted into this Los Alamos base of all places and I'm sure many more. But you start to see as the Internet becomes more uh, prolific and, and ubiquitous, used in more places, guys like uh, Kevin Paulson, right, who, you know, used. And this is actually I think we maybe we should take a step back and talk about the phone lines and where the like really the early hacker culture came from because it sounds to me like it wasn't just the early days of the internet it was also like people booting into the the phone lines right and getting into phone lines back in the day they were called freakers right yeah i mean freaking is basically making free phone calls so you know right now i'm accessing you know you and i are having a conversation over zoom which is completely free but back in the day you know you would actually need to place a phone call from computer to computer you would save on long distance by entering codes and hacking into the phone system but most of these people were dialing into each specific computer so it wasn't as simple as me opening a web browser and typing in www dot you know my family thinks i'm crazy dot com i have to dial into you you know sometimes you know your your system would have a password and you know they just wanted to get into your system to sort of see what was there but it was almost pre-internet the internet really existed only as arpanet you know in terms of the government or in the university system but you know back in the 80s when these things were going down when kevin paulson kevin mitnick the 414s were around, there really was no internet the way you and I know and access it now. It was just dialing from computer to computer, dialing into uh, phone system mainframes and, you know, wreaking havoc. I mean, one of the stories that we told about the Legion of Doom, which was a hacking group from the 80s, right around the time of the 414s is, you know, they hacked into AT&T and crashed the entire phone system where no one could make a call for, you know, an entire day. And it was just basically kids having fun. Obviously, that cost AT&T some money, and that was certainly a little bit worse than what the 414s had done. But it was the Wild West because any phone number could be a person or it could be a computer system. And that was really intriguing to a lot of people. Absolutely. And mixed with, you know, some of the sci-fi and obviously movies like war games coming out, you know, it definitely felt like a easy way to gain power as like, you know, a disenfranchised youth in American culture. You know, there's not a lot of ways, you know, outside of going and doing something uh, like joining a gang or something crazy like that. You know, these kids found a sort of you know, their own illegal underground niche to get some power, <laughs> albeit, you know, maybe just for ego. And, and a lot of times it seems like it devolved into, you know, the the lust for power, money and riches, you know, and, and, and fame even in some cases. I mean, you have this Gonzalez character who went by the, the name Soup Nazi, right? Who was one of the biggest credit card scammers, you know, in history right and and he started off as a hacker figuring all this out on forums and playing around yeah i mean that guy extorted so much money from credit card companies he was able to break into secure networks 
and actively steal credit card for transactions as they happen. The funny thing about Albert Gonzalez or Soup Nazi is that he was working in tandem with the federal government. So he was busting some of his friends and he was, quote, working on some of these cases to try and solve these credit card fraud things. But really what he was doing is allowing himself to stay one step ahead of law enforcement. And this is happening more and more now. I mean, if you are a computer hacker, there is a job for you. The government would be more than happy to pay you to come and hack for them. You know, I've said this several times now, but, you know, you know, World War Three, I'm sure while it will be fought on the, you know, the battlefield, it will be fought cyber just as much. I mean, all of our systems are connected to the Internet now. You know, there's a story coming up. We're doing something on the Israeli Cyber Warfare Division, Unit 8200. I think that's coming next month. And Iran was trying to get back at something that Israel had done, and they actively hacked into their water system and were trying to release a certain amount of chlorine, which would have effectively poisoned the people of Israel. So it is starting to get more malevolent. But, you know, back in the 80s, I think it's a lot of kids, like you said, sort of disenfranchised youth. Maybe they had trouble at home or maybe they were just bullied at school. And really the one place where they could sort of take control was online. And that's sort of what gave birth to the hacker. Right. Well, and there's even the guy who, right, he he used some form, form of hacking to jam the telephone lines so that he could win a radio contest and him and his buddies won and then probably sold a Porsche, right? <laughs> Yeah, I think they ended up winning three Porsches. That's in the Moda Mischief episode about Kevin Polson. And this is just a guy in the rut that needs money. And it was incredibly easy to hack into KISS FM, which is still a local radio station here in Los Angeles, hack into those phone lines, tie all of them up. And when they were hitting caller number 10, he was right there, won himself a Porsche, won himself some trips, cash. You know, if you were able to do it, it could be quite lucrative. But then, of course, as it always happens, law enforcement catches up to you eventually. <laughs> Right. Right. And I think this gives way for what we see maybe in more recent times with what maybe has been termed like hacktivists, right? Where people are going and using their knowledge of internet and computer systems to maybe sway some sort of political change. Maybe, you know, that is for worse or for better. I mean, what are your thoughts on, on hacktivism? I mean, a lot of it seems nowadays with like groups like anonymous to be more, I don't know, controlled opposition, but what are your thoughts on, on that group anonymous? You know, it's, it's funny because anonymous is so decentralized. There's no figurehead of anonymous where you can make a definitive thing and say what this person did was good or what this person did was bad. You've seen anonymous come in on a lot of social justice, justice issues and dox people that they doxed a lot of racists, stuff like that. You know, I, I think the debate comes into at, you, you know, you, you get into a privacy debate. You know, there are a lot of bad people out there saying and doing a lot of bad stuff. But if I were to publish all of your information on the internet, the repercussions for you could potentially be catastrophic. Not just people knowing your social security number and opening up credit cards in your name or things like that, but showing up where you live and suddenly your life becomes in danger. So I'm not certainly not against hacktivism because I, I think there is a time and a place for that. But what's right and what's wrong to one person is completely different for another. You look at, I can't remember the name of the hacker that did it, 
but they hacked into Ashley Madison, which is the, you know, a fair site where, you know, typically married couples would go and, you know, find people and have affairs. And, you know, what, what they were doing, it would be morally wrong for some, but now everybody's name was out there on the internet. Is that right? You know, I, I like privacy. I think it's nice to have a, you know, a few things. So I don't know if that's right or not, but people continue to do it for, for better or for worse. So it's hard to definitively answer that one way or another, other than it's a reality in which we're living in activism. Right. Right. Yeah. And it does seem like it's getting harder and harder to, you know, pin people down. It seems like hackers have mastered, I mean, hence the name anonymous, but identity and the practice of doxing someone has taken all sorts of levels. I mean, I've seen stories of, you know, in the world of gaming, you have these guys who stream their whole lives, you know, on Twitch pretty much. And then these trolls or whoever it is comes along and they figure out where this person is in, in real life. And then they'll like call a SWAT team on them or the, you know, just like incredibly life potentially damaging things happening to these people all because, you know, they're on this, you know, internet in this internet subculture. Have you looked into what's called swatting before? Have you guys talked about that? We haven't talked about it yet. We're doing an episode on Gamergate, which is a pretty touchy subject. And that's coming out in the next month or two as well. And there were some people that were that were swatted. Basically, that would be someone, usually a troll, calling the police to your house and saying, you know, this person has a gun and is being held up. And so the SWAT team essentially comes. It's happened to celebrities. It's happened to a lot of people. And that really brings up an interesting debate about the Internet, you know, the fact that you can be anonymous is a lot of fun and, and, and useful in a lot of ways. I mean, if you're, you know, uh, part of some kind of authoritarian re regime and there are whistleblowing, anonymity is a very important thing. But, you know, you and I are having a very good and civil discussion right now. But, you know, if one of us was anonymous, cloaked behind some avatar on the Internet, we could say whatever we want with no repercussions. And these are things that we would never say to each other on a, you know, face to face. And it, I think that's the trouble right now with the internet. You know, I think there are a lot of people asking for, you know, if you want to go on the internet, you have to have your identity verified and, and things like that. And when it comes to things like cyberbullying and trolling and, you know, it's just, it's been so bad for so many people's mental health. You can see why it would be nice to have a verified identity because, you know, I would never say something, you know, hurtful about you or your mother or something like that. But, you know, behind a wall of secrecy, you know, I might say anything, you know, that my id wants me to say. And I think that that's really, really troubling. And well, you know, I don't think it's good for the world. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely a tough subject. But, you know, funny enough, there are podcasters who go by alter egos or fake names and you know i don't want to mention anybody but i have had some weird uh interactions with people who unfortunately aren't so forthcoming with their identity and you definitely see them maybe taking that liberty of anonymity to that degree yes their faces is out there but they seem a little bit more <laughs> you know like i don't know Anyways, there's definitely some 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 people out there who who might surprise you in the podcasting world, but for sure the the nature of anonymity is going it, it seems like it's going to be monetized. I mean, you see these security companies more and more, you know, 
tools and, and products designed to keep your identity safe, keep your passwords safe. You know, we have cryptocurrency on the rise, so people are keeping their wallets all secure and whatnot. So it seems like, you know, the the process of security, much like in the real world with locks and, and all that, you know, you got to buy a nice security camera if you want to keep your house safe in some areas, right? The, the internet's going to be the same way where we're going to have to, you know, invest in products to keep our identity safe. And, and obviously, you know, there's a business there with guys like John McAfee, right? Where he was pretty famous making money in that realm, keeping people's computers safe from, from something different malware. But it's interesting, you know, he kind of made his money in that realm and then seems to have taken a very wide, you know, very sharp left turn away from that realm. I mean, what was John McAfee's life like after he left McAfee security and sold the company? Because I think that's an episode that I definitely encourage people to check out. You got into some some weird angles of this guy's life, but what what did his what did his cyber crimes com comprise of? Because it seemed like he was just more of an infamous person on the internet, and it's not that he actually committed any cyber crimes. No, you're right. I mean, John McAfee, you know, to do what he did, which is you know basically invent the first antivirus software, which we all ran, especially in the '90s. I remember Michelangelo being the big virus that's going to kill your computer, and you know we all panicked and bought McAfee antivirus software to to keep it off of there. He wasn't really a true cybercrime perpetrator so much as a mischief maker online. You know, once he sold his company, he did it very early. He was not at McAfee Security for very long. He took his many millions of dollars and just hit the road. I mean, the man loved women, drugs, dogs. He loved his compounds. You know what I mean? He loved to buy houses and outfit them, you know, for the apocalypse. And he just loved to have a good time. Um, you know, he loved to post on Twitter and, you know, uh, you know, smoking pot and, 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 you know, he was trolling McAfee antivirus software, the people that still owned it, encouraging people to un uninstall it because it was so bad. He was implicated in murders and none of that was really done online. But, you know, I kind of looked at the John McAfee story and he's such a an icon in the cyber world. And though he wasn't a traditional hacker, it was still a fun story to tell because of how just batshit crazy he was and i kind of i love i loved that i sort of love that about him you know a lot of conspiracy there you know john mcafee you know he was going to prison he was trying to they were trying to extradite him back to the united states for uh you know tax fraud and i think he's it was trouble with the sec and you know he's like if i ever turn up dead and they say it was suicide i did not suicide myself you know something happened so you know it's really hard to get any real definitive information on if he was just crazy or if there was a real threat to his life and the government had him killed. But certainly a fascinating character with a fascinating story, one that was fun to tell. Absolutely. And you wonder, you know, with his prowess on the Internet, what maybe he was holding back and and maybe... That's why he got suicided. He had some information that some people didn't want getting out. Or maybe he was just trying to glom onto that Epstein fame and, and put that out there. And and then, yeah, unfortunately, mental health and being what it is in this society, I wouldn't you know put it past him to have done that. I've heard some 
really wild stuff about him. I've even, uh, he's even been on a show that I work for, not when I worked for it, but he was a guest on Tinfoil Hat a couple years ago talking about conspiracy theories and whatnot. So I wouldn't put it past him to have known some, some, some out there things, maybe some true things that powerful people don't want other people to know. There's certainly some blackmail going around about him. And I think you guys on the show do a great job of keeping it family friendly. I will say if there are any parents out there, Mode of Mischief is a, a show you can listen to with kids. I would say teenagers. There are some episodes that are, you know, recommended that they don't listen to one or two, I think. But for the most part, it's a show that uh, parents can listen to with their kids, which is uh, a really cool thing that, you know, this show I wouldn't say that for. Definitely not. Don't listen to this show with your kids. I mean, maybe not this conversation, but, you know, for the most part, it's not a show for parents uh, to listen to with their kids. And, and Modem Mischief is, you know, definitely not the case. I mean, one thing that, you know, maybe got a little racy was the Max Headroom case, which I've heard about before and definitely kind of uh, an odd thing that stands out. Tell us about what happened with Max Headroom. Well, if you haven't seen the video of the Max Headroom uh, signal hijack, you have to look it up on YouTube because it, because it is utterly insane. Basically what happened, it was in the 80s during a football game in Chicago and the TV signal got interrupted. And there was a person dressed like Max Headroom who was a popular sort of sci-fi sort of post-apocalyptic digital character from the 80s he was in a lot of coca-cola commercials he had like he had a movie and for a minute for a hot second he was just super popular so someone was dressed as max headroom in the background was super digitally wavy and he was just yelling at the tv screen you know he was he was yelling about liberals and then all of a sudden there was a there was a cut and his bare ass was bared and somebody was spanking him. And this happened a couple of times over the course of the evening. And the interesting thing is, is no one knows who did it. You know, it's still a mystery to this very day. And it's just a very strange cybercrime, you know, early hacking story. You know, usually people cop to things eventually, you know, be like, oh, it was me. You know, the statute of limitations is open, is over. I'm sure it is from, you know, when that was, but nobody came forward and nobody said, you know, hey, it was me, but it's a really, really interesting story. You have to listen to it on Modem Mischief, of course, and then you should definitely YouTube it because it's a, it's bizarre. It's, it's hard to even explain. Absolutely. Yeah. And it reminds me of a case, which I don't know if it quite fits the bill for a modem mischief episode, but who knows? There's a case that I've learned about a while back ago, this case called the Toynbee Tile case. And it's about this gentleman who's pretty famous for this street art that's all over New York City, Philadelphia. It's just like these license plate shaped tiles that are really tarred into the ground, you know, so they become a part of the asphalt, right? And certain parts of sidewalks. But this guy had this really peculiar message about reincarnating people on Jupiter and how Stanley Kubrick's movie, you know, had something to do with the government's programs on Jupiter. So this is his message. It's in the art. And allegedly he had this wacky car that he drove around town in 
with some sort of radio hijacker, we'll use for lack of a better word, that would jam the signals of anybody who was listening to the radio and play this interview with an author who this guy was obsessed with. So he would drive around New York City or Phil actually it was Philadelphia. He would drive around Philadelphia and jam the local radio signals playing this, you know, interview with Arthur Toynbee, the author of a you know, book about sort of like a science fiction from the early 20th century author but yeah really peculiar stuff and i found the tiles really strange because i just bumped into them one day on my travels walking around and i just was like what is this i've never seen these before it turns out there's a podcast about it i start learning about them and there are hundreds of them all over different uh, metropolitan areas throughout the united states specifically on the east coast so this guy was driving all over in some car that he had rigged and not to mention the radio uh funny business that he had going on the passenger side of his car there was no seat and the the floor was cut out so as he was driving he can throw down these pieces of art and then they would get driven over by other cars and become a part of the asphalt eventually so it's kind of a you know it's it's not quite conspiracy but it is fits kind of in that same realm as max headroom where you can like and nobody really knows who this guy is this is all kind of alleged too it's apparently it was a, a guy named sebi and and yeah there's a documentary about it but <laughs> yeah that's fascinating what a cool story i'll have to look that podcast up it's please do yeah yard yeah. I'll, I'll send you the link, but there, there are oh, so many, you. yeah, there are so many. And, you know, I looked up a couple lists of, of, you know, the most notorious hackers and there's still you know plenty of hackers that you haven't gotten to yet. I don't want to go too far into too many of these cases. Cause I definitely want people to check out the show, but one that my audience is definitely going to be interested in is Gary McKinnon. I mean, famous, pretty famous. I've heard about him before before i was aware of your show for hacking into nasa right he was you know trying to figure out what was nasa hiding there's a lot of people who've been on this show who've told us that nasa's straight up lying to us so what what have you learned about gary mckinnon because this is right up our alley well uh, you know again it kind of goes back to that old hacker hacker thing from from the 80s it's so many people are just curious and want to know more you know whether or not what he what he found was true or not it he was on a quest for knowledge he hacked into nasa because you know from a very early age gary mckinnon was obsessed with ufos and aliens he was convinced that the united states government at many governments but pri primarily the united states government was hiding information about aliens and he didn't know how to get in how to you know get more information so he hacked into nasa he basically installed a program called remote anywhere which would allow that him to just log in and look at their desktop as they saw it and he was combing through files and directories and then he started to find things you know it would of course take forever to download and you know allegedly he found information about these aliens of course eventually somebody walked in and you know saw him on their computer and shut it down and then of course that started a very large you know investigation but you know obviously it's a crime to hack into nasa okay it's bad did he break the law of course he did but the united states government's overreaction to this was just really abysmal because they wanted to extradite him and they probably would have put him away for life 
if the British government, which is, you know, he was a British citizen, did not intervene and say, no, we're not going to extradite him. Right. Um, it would be terrible for his mental health. I mean, he had Asperger's syndrome and, you know, the whole, you know, him being pursued by the government was obviously terrible on his mental health. And, you know, they didn't think that he would make it. They thought that he probably would have killed himself, you know. So, you know, uh, you know, but of course we can't put him away for a couple of years. You know, the U.S. government has to, you know, do life or, you know, take him to some sort of CIA black site for something that was just trying to find out information, even though it was bad. But yeah, yeah you know, I, you know, allegedly he did find things on uh, on UFOs and aliens. Well, and, and it's reminiscent of, you know, other cases, maybe more serious cases like Edward Snowden. It seems like the government has this approach to anybody. I mean, from somebody like Edward, who was working within the CIA, then NASA, right? You know, to a guy like Gary McKinnon, who was just a UFO researcher, not, you know, not, not involved with any agencies at all. I don't, you know, maybe MUFON, but, you know, definitely not any government agencies. But then you have a guy like Edward Snowden, who almost gets the exact same treatment, probably much worse. I mean, he's, he's still to this day held up somewhere. I believe, is he not in, is he in Russia now or has he moved to South America? Or am I confusing him with someone else? No, that he tried to go to South America, but he would have crossed through U.S. airspace or an airspace that had extradition agreements with the United States. So he ended up in Russia. The Russian government granted him access, and he's been there ever since. I mean, Edward Stone was a whistleblower. He exposed information that the U.S. was actively spying on United States citizens on U.S. soil. But it wasn't just bad actors that they were spying on. They were spying on literally everyone. They had tools that could access your webcam when it was turned off. You know, they had access to phone calls. People at the NSA, the U.S. agency, the NSA, you know, were spying on ex-girlfriends using all this, all of this software, seeing who they were talking to, watching them on their webcams. It was a really, really bad look. I think the surprise that everyone had was surprising to me because we've been spying on our own citizens. For decades, I mean, you know, J. Edgar Hoover was doing it, you know, back when the FBI was first formed. So I don't think it should have come as too much of a surprise, especially considering that we never really killed the Patriot Act. You know, after 9-11, really everything changed. And, you know, we're going for this ultra safety. And Snowden basically exposed that. He also exposed that we were spying on, you know, German Chancellor uh, Angela Merkel who was, you know, who's an ally at the time. We were spying on absolutely everyone. And you can make the argument that we needed to do that for our own, you know, safety as a nation, you know, but they probably, they definitely would have put Snowden away for life. They very well could have killed him. And if you look at the way the U.S. government has handled whistleblowers, um, they always end up in prison for a very, very long time. So I understand him fleeing. I understand him wanting to make the world aware of what was going on. I think people fall into two different camps. One, Edward Snowden was a patriot or two, Edward Snowden uh, is a traitor. You know, and I think people have made the cases both ways effectively. And it comes down to a matter of opinion. For me, I think he was ultimately, and we try to stay somewhat objective on Modep mischief, but, you know, ultimately I do think that what he did was patriotic and, you know, I think eventually we need to do something to allow him to come back to where he was born because he very much wants to. Right. And there are a lot of things that you guys mentioned that I had never heard of before. One of them among many was the uh, point of the Rubik's cube and how 
he actually snuck this information out through a what some sort of i'm gonna guess usb drive or maybe a sd card inside of a, a rubik's cube which is really fascinating definitely you know this is the type of storytelling that brings the information to a part of your brain that i think is really making podcasting extremely successful. It's this oral tradition that we're tapping into, you know, and as a storyteller, I'm sure you're aware of this, but there are so many more cases of hackers. So I definitely see your show going for a long time. I mean, one of them that I looked up here that I'm wondering if you've heard of is Jeanson James Anchetta, and he is responsible for a series of large-scale botnet attacks where he used these botnets to compromise over 400,000 different computers. I mean, this is like, you know, and he was just trying to play around with the bots and see what they are capable of, but it definitely feels, you know, with the hacktivists and whistleblowers and Julian Assange and even Gary McKinnon, it feels like this archetype of the hacker is becoming almost, you know, in the same vein as a conspiracy theorist is this like, you know, bucking against the system, you know, the common man standing up for rights, whether it's freedom of speech, press, or whatever, whatever human rights beyond those, you know, I think that this is becoming, like you said, the internet's obviously here, it's not going anywhere. So this is becoming, you know, a new way to fight war. And here we have these sort of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, mercenaries, you know, coming out of the woodwork to, you know, stand up for the common man in some cases. In other cases, they're just straight up criminals. I mean, I don't want to put these guys on a pedestal either because they are doing things that are illegal for a reason. I mean, I don't agree with with every law, but I definitely see why these things are illegal. I mean, people can cause a lot of a lot of uh, damage, we'll say. But I mean, I've been on even Zoom calls that seem like, you know, with certain people that there's somebody hacking with the system you know, or the signal and trying to jam certain guests from getting certain information out. You know, it's like a common joke you'll hear on these conspiracy podcasts. When somebody has a bad connection, they'll be like, oh, they're watching us now. They're listening to us now. And sometimes I'm like, oh, come on, you're not that important. But it there is a, a truth to that. Like, you know, surveillance has become, you know, a daily part of our lives, really. And of everyone's lives, you know, I mean, arguably living in the United States, we don't have it as bad as some, you know, like China or you know, the way they surveil their population and, you know, you know, a country like, like Singapore, but it's, uh, yeah, it is. Well, <laughs> it I, is I funny think Sweden even just put like cameras on every street corner. One of these Northern European countries just like locked everything down, complete techno state. And if there's anyone listening from those countries, please tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm almost certain that a lot of places in Europe that are like that surveillance state, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, and I think it's only going to get worse. You know, the more power we get, and you know, I, this is not to say, I, I know I've, I've been very critical, I think on the podcast of the U.S. government, but you know, they are, they are trying to keep us safe. And, you know, if a cyber war ever breaks out, we have to hope that, you know, some of these hackers work for the U.S. government, because the last thing you want is, you know, somebody like Vladimir Putin 
hacking into our water system or shutting down our power grid for an extended period of time. Because, you know, right now it's, you know, our lights are on and, you know, our Zoom call is activated, but, you know, one bad actor can cause some really serious damage. And, right. you know, I've said this before on other shows and, and you know, I'll say it a million times, it's, you know, imagine a really bad actor, what they're capable of doing, you know, with the worst intentions they could make life not only uncomfortable but they could kill a lot of people using cyber you know in world war ii what would have happened if adolf hitler had the cyber warfare tools available to him that we have available now it could have been a very it could have turned out a lot worse absolutely yeah no there i mean in the case of the 414, they were not only hacking into Los Alamos, but they were also hacking into a hospital. Still, they're just playing games, literal games, like there are games on these computer systems that they were trying to play. But, you know, a more malicious actor could certainly do something like that in the modern world. Well, and they have. And they have. I mean, there's a, we, we have a Patreon page. Right. If you look at Moda Mischief there, if you want to support the show and we do bonus episodes that come out the first Friday of every month. And we did a one on ransomware and it talks about how there were a couple of hospitals that were victims of ransomware attacks and people died because of it. That may not have been the attention, you know, the intention of the hacker, but that is what ended up happening. And so there are real world consequences to cybercrime now, real life and death ones that happen, especially because so many of our things run on the internet. The 414s, you know, the worst that happened is that they deleted a $1,500 bill. And given the cost of healthcare, I say they were, they were doing Robin Hood's work and that- They're doing that's someone a favor, life. yeah. They were, they were exactly. But when you're interrupting life support systems and medical records and things like that, you are toying with people's lives and that is starting to happen now. Right. Well, I just subscribed to your Patreon. I hope other people do too, because the bonus episodes that you have put out are really fascinating stuff. You have 18 here already, 18 posts, and you're pumping out content every month. I definitely am looking forward to that story on the 8200, right? Is it? Is Shreya? You did 8200? Yeah. That'll be out in a month. Uh, our next bonus episode comes out this Friday, and that's on the Sony Pictures hack. Um, mm where Kim Jong-un got, got really upset with Seth Rogen. So we're going to tell that story on, on Patreon this Friday. So that should, that, that's a fun one. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, in the same sort of realm as the 8,100 or 8,200, we have the Stuxnet case, right? I remember when Vice did a story on this a couple of years ago, and I found it really fascinating how, like, as you were kind of just saying there. The internet is such an inherent part of so many components to our everyday world, even a nuclear facility, they were able to get in there somehow and jam the computer system to actually cause physical damage within this reactor. I mean, totally throwing off their nuclear production. I don't know if, if that's affected them. It sounds like they're still working on it now, but what, what else is there about this Stuxnet? that case because it's a pretty great example of cyber warfare moving forward in this new 21st century that's a good question it, it's a fascinating story because um because it did because no one died because of it but it was a, basically a military operation that worked out well iran was very close to having enough enriched uranium to have a nuclear bomb 
which would be a very bad thing for the world. Obviously, that would be very troubling for the country of Israel, who's very close geographically. You know, if they had intercontinental ballistic missiles, it would be very, very bad for the United States as well. And we are certainly not allies with Iran. So what basically the United States government and Unit 8200, which is the Cyber Warfare Division of uh, the country of Israel, did was they created a computer virus that would speed up and slow down the nuclear centrifuges in Iran. Um, which basically, for a period of time, derailed their nuclear program. Now, if this was 10, 15 years ago and we wanted to derail their nuclear program, we would bomb them. And many people who are, you know, just innocent engineers would have died. But what we did this time was we basically smuggled in a, US, a USB drive and implanted this computer worm on their network, which basically allowed it where they wouldn't have been able to enrich enough uranium to create a bomb. So they were very effective at what they did. It just happened too quickly and they realized something was going wrong in their system. And as a result of that, Iran got obviously very upset. And earlier in the podcast, I was mentioning how they tried to hack into Israel's water system to release chlorine in it to kill the people that would have been retaliation for that. So that's an example of two governments working together, doing cyber warfare, where, you know, the objective was accomplished and nobody died, which I think is pretty cool. It definitely is interesting to see those non-lethal tactics used in warfare. But yeah, I mean, it definitely isn't, you know, very settling to learn that these kind of tactics are going on when we're so tied to the grid, I mean, specifically the job that we're in, you know, if our internet goes off, we, we can't show up to work essentially, you know what I mean? Right. So right. It, it definitely does feel important for me to learn about all this stuff. I'm sort of considering using something like a, a Starlink moving forward. Have you heard about this, like this sort of decentralized way to access the internet through satellite. It's a little out of my realm of uh, knowledge. I'm not sure if I'm even using the right terms, but it's my understanding that there are people out there in rural areas who are connecting to the internet through something like a satellite technology. Yeah, it's an interesting technology. You know, Starlink is a division. It's one of Elon Musk's many, many companies. And he's launching, I think, thousands of satellites to allow it to create a sort of web of Internet around the globe, which will allow effectively everyone to have Internet. I know once a year, my family and I goes camp go camping in Big Sur and there's no Internet whatsoever. I can't even make a phone call over there, which is a little disconcerting for a guy that does a lot of work on the Internet. But, you know, that said, you know, this year they're using Starlink and everyone at the campsite will have this pretty good internet and i i think that's cool because you're not tied to you know your ethernet or your your wi-fi router you can effectively go out and get it anywhere i think one of the big concerns is and i'm kind of a space nerd is the amount of junk um that it's going to create and you know eventually the i feel like earth is going to be surrounded by so much space junk you won't be able to get out of it i mean we have satellites and all these you know random things that are spinning around the earth at thousands of miles an hour and i, I think that's a little troubling but you know i think ultimately you know for elon musk it's just another step in order to facilitate communication eventually with you know a mars colony so i think it's kind of cool actually and not a bad backup source certainly for internet 
Right. Yeah, I've heard a lot of mixed reactions to Elon's plans to colonize Mars. It is certainly interesting considering the similarities between him and I think it's a science fiction character by the same name. I don't I don't remember exactly, but we were having a conversation about this on a recent episode that hasn't come out yet. But yeah, yeah, I, I definitely am worried about the space junk too. I think there's something about this plan to colonize our atmosphere with the internet that might have some drawbacks. I'm no expert, but I don't want to be a Luddite. I definitely believe in the internet's ability to help and empower people. I think everyone should have access, certain, but at what cost, you know, is definitely, we're a little too uh, early in this new world to tell what the, you know, pros and cons are going to be fully but yeah it's definitely interesting knowing that there are these sort of hacker cowboys out there willing to you know mess with the system if they don't like what the system's doing and i i think you know more power to the common man who does something for the people and and in the vein of suck stuxnet you know doesn't hurt anybody while doing it i think that's an important thing to say we definitely don't want to condone any legal action, yeah, stealing Porsches. Yeah, I guess maybe, you know, Porsche is not exactly the most honorable company themselves, I'm sure. So whatever, but I definitely, you know, I want to thank you for, for showing up here and, and talking about all this stuff. I think that, you know, it's not easy to do a podcast about a podcast that talks about stories because you just need to listen to the stories you yourself folks i mean the podcast is good gets my seal of approval right now stamped it and uh, i definitely think that you know this is a, a topic that is just sort of yet to be explored i mean 11 12 something episodes in and uh there's still so many other cases out there yet to be covered so like i said I'm on the Patreon now. I'm excited to see what's next. Anything else? You've already given us a couple teasers on what's coming out next, but, or maybe rather, you know, are there any cases that you've learned about that just couldn't fill a whole episode that, you know, are interesting, but just weren't, you know, deep enough to, to take a whole episode and make it into? There are, there are quite a few. I have a whole, I basically planned out the entire year worth of episodes. Now I'm going to make a few tweaks because of what's going on in the Ukraine mm. with cyber and, and Russia. I think there's some interesting stories to tell there. So we're going to bump a couple of, of shows, but there are stories that I can't fill a full 40 minutes with. And that's usually why we do a bonus episode. The Sony pictures hack is a great story, but if I did a full episode, I think it's kind of overkill. So it's basically we're doing it's still a full episode. It's just a little bit shorter. So we're telling those stories are bonus episodes on Patreon, as well as the Apple podcast uh, subscription platform we just launched yesterday. So people are able to get those things there. And, you know, I've had uh, as the shows taken, you know, become a little bit more visible. People started emailing these stories. I had somebody DM us on Instagram the other day on our Instagram handle at modem mischief if anybody's interested and he sent me an article and i was like i gotta put that in there as a bonus episode for later this year um because you know as you said it's you know it's not something that's going away there's lots of topics and i'm sure after this conversation i'll look at the news i'll see two more cyber things that i'm gonna have to bookmark for other shows so mm. there's definitely uh, no shortage of information out there that's for sure
Well, I'm uh, and I have to say, I'm also a fan of your show. Um, yeah. It's a thrill to be on also because my family thinks I'm crazy too, you know, but I listened to a few episodes when you and I first started communicating uh, a month or so ago. And uh, so I've been really been enjoying it too. So thank me you. as a listener on this show. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. And I'm looking forward to seeing it when and if you cover Anonymous. I think they came up in one of your episodes that was more focused on Guccifer, right, with the DNC hacks. Mm. But I definitely think that there's some information that you can dig up on Anonymous that people haven't heard of because they've been around for a while. They've been doing stuff. I have a, a Guy Fox mask. I was around back then with the Bernie thing. And, and I remember being like, this is not this is not what they're telling us in the media. And I kind of, I was inspired by Anonymous in a, a pretty interesting way. And now I've kind of questioned that because I'm like, eh, what are they doing? Or maybe they're a part of the government, who knows? So I definitely would love to learn more about that topic if I could throw my suggestion in the ring. And uh, it's coming later this year. Awesome. Later this year. I, it's just a, it'll be an interesting story to tell because of how decentralized. So I hope that we're able to deliver on the quality of episode, but I definitely want to do anonymous. I think, yeah, there's a lot of great stories to tell. So later on in the year, it's coming for sure. Right on. So let's switch gears a little bit before we totally sign off. One of the other projects that I do outside of this podcast is Alt Media United. It's a podcast cooperative that William is also a part of with his podcast and for folks listening who have their own podcast, what advice can you give to maybe early podcasters or maybe people who are more further along? Cause you have won a couple of awards, you know, and what, what kind of uh, advice do you have if, if you're willing to share? Yeah, I, I think pot, the thing I love about podcasts is it's, it's, it's something you can do almost immediately. We all have microphones and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm sure you and I have spent a way too much money on gear and things like that, you know, trying to make ourselves sound as, as good and professional as possible. But if you want a podcast, if you've got a great story to tell, you should go do that. You know, now there are some people that are like, oh, I'm just going to go and I'm going to make a hundred million dollars like Joe Rogan. I'm just going to interview my friends and we're going to, you know, shit, shit for a little bit. I, you know, that's cool. And, you know, but really have an opinion, have something that you're super passionate about and go and podcast about that. If you tell a good story, eventually people will start to hear you. Eventually you'll be able to connect with, you know, people like you and, and, and get on their podcast and kind of share that to, to their audience as well. And that's really important. But it's such a great medium, you know, I mean, if I want to see a movie, I got to go sit in my living room or go to a movie theater, but I can listen to a podcast anytime. And it's such an opportunity to learn, to be entertained, you know, to think, to be sad, all those kinds of things. And that's why I think podcasting is wonderful. But, you know, if anybody, uh, I also, you know, produce podcasts for a living outside of modem mischief. You know, if anybody ever has questions about podcasts, feel free to get in touch with me online. I'm always willing to respond to an email or a DM, stuff like that. I love talking about podcasts. It's great. It's a great medium. Thank you so much. Yeah, right on. I agree i'm so glad i asked you about that i think that you know it's important to say you do this independently your show is not a part of a network and that's kind of what we highlight here with alt media united is is giving independent podcasters a place where their content is shown and their integrity and maybe even their dollars aren't compromised because in my opinion and maybe even in adam curry's opinion 
kind of where I learned it from. Podcast networks just don't work. So we're a podcast cooperative and we try to do whatever we can to help other podcasters. So I'd love to have Moda Mischief a part of it. If you'd be willing, I'll send you all the information after this. And then, yeah, Keith, it was a pleasure meeting you and a pleasure talking to you about this. And I definitely am looking forward to what you come out with next on the show. You as well. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks so much for having me. No problem, brother. Well, thank you so much, folks. Please do check out Moda Mischief wherever you're listening to this podcast and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I appreciate everybody who listens. We have listeners all over the world, and I'm so grateful that you spend your time with us here. And not just me, of course, the amazing, wonderful guests that we have had on the show. This is almost episode 150. I'm hoping to have a big, big guest for episode 150. So be sure to tune in for that. But of course, I got to thank our guest today, Keith Corneluck. I wasn't kidding when I said I listen to every episode of Moda Mischief. I love the podcast. I love the way he tells stories. And I think these stories are just so fascinating. You know, we've got stories about all kinds of different hackers, soup Nazis, a particularly weird one, scamming credit cards is the Lizard Squad, Gary McKinnon, of course the guy who hacked into NASA. And there were so many that we didn't even touch on just due to the nature of conversation. But it is funny, Ross Ulbricht is the first two episodes of this podcast. And I met his mother last summer at Porcupine Fest. And it was an honor to meet her. Uh, very sorry to, to you know see what happened to her son it hurts even more when you meet his mother so our thoughts and prayers go out to Ross Ulbrich because I honestly don't think that he deserved life in prison yeah you know maybe he shouldn't have called a hit on somebody as even if that's true I mean I don't know that could have been set up that way but either way really sucks to see that happen I remember being a Chinese food delivery guy and just being kind of baffled and enthralled to hear my coworker tell me that he was buying drugs off of the internet and they would just show up to his house and, you know, taped up weird black packages or just regular old envelopes filled with like just straight up bags of powder or whatever else this freak was, was getting. Uh, and you know what? Shout out to that dude. If he is ever listening to this, uh, he wasn't all that weird, but definitely an eye-opener anyways a lot of awesome episodes go check out Moda mischief i signed up for the patreon to get some of those bonus episodes that he mentioned and there's a bunch of good ones um but anyways a lot of bonus content for this show considering that this is a wednesday episode i wanted to put in uh you know something extra, I guess. Don't have a 
extended outro guest this week, but I have been doing a really awesome show with Michael Wan called Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. It's on his Susquehanna Alchemy podcast feed. You could type that in. It's S-U-S-Q-U-E-H-A-N-N-A, Alchemy, A-L-C-H-E-M-Y. And yeah, just check that out. We've got a bunch of great episodes. I figured I'd put the latest one in there. And Mike and I have been sort of documenting our thoughts on a myriad of things over the past 22 episodes. It's really more of a free-form, free-flow type of conversation. I also have a podcast that I do with Dave Zed. It's... uh, called the Elemental Philosophorum. Our next episode is on helium. There's still time to join the Telegram group. If you join the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast Telegram group and send me a little message, I'll add you into the Elemental Philosophorum group. And that's kind of like a research group we're going to get going there where people can help research for the show. Uh, So yeah, the next episode is helium. It's coming out this month. And then, of course, I have a really fun new podcast that I do with Juan from the one-on-one podcast and Chris from the Mensa podcast. We call it Illuminati confirmed. And we've been talking to some really interesting guests. Uh, The next episode that's coming out is with Ryan Burns, but we've already recorded two other episodes and you know me, I can't just sit on good content. So I put it out on the Patreon. If you want to get those right now, there are five episodes of the Illuminati Confirmed Patreon, plus a bonus Patreon show where it's just Chris, Juan, and I talking about our thoughts on a whole bunch of different things. Uh, Nick Cage was the primary motivator for a lot of our original conversations, but we've diverted into much more interesting stuff. And, of course, we come back to our friend Nick Cage every now and then because I think he is absolutely fascinating. So does Juan. Juan has somewhat of a crush on him, we'll say. Uh, but don't tell him I said that. And, uh, and yeah, so that's Illuminati confirmed. We've got that show, the Elemental Philosophy Forum, and the show that you're about to listen to, Your Handbook for the Apocalypse with myself and Michael Juan. So enjoy that. Before we get to that, though, I just want to give a shout-out to our two newest patrons. That's right. We have two new patrons joining us and they deserve some spirit animal names. So let's get the cards and divine some spirit animal names. All right. First up we have Julia. Julia, thank you so much for joining the, my family thinks I'm crazy. Patreon. Your spirit animal name is Ooh, the expansive nightingale. You got the storyteller card, which symbolizes expansion. So you are the expansive nightingale flying far and wide. And next up, big thank you to Sudi. Thank you for being here. Your spirit animal name is the rainbow bear. That's right. You got the whirling rainbow card, which symbolizes unity and wholeness achieved. And you got the bear card right on. So, like I said, next up is 
episode of Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. Not sure if I'm going to do the most recent episode or maybe an episode that fits in with our discussion here today. But either way, enjoy and be sure to subscribe to Modem Mischief on any podcast app. And of course, subscribe to Susquehanna Alchemy, the podcast you're about to listen to. Thank you so much for being here. Don't forget, it is Merch Madness, the month the month of Merch Madness. That's right. So don't forget, use the promo code MERCH88 and get free shipping on one of the many, many awesome designs that we have available on our store. Go check it out today. And that's it. Take it easy, folks. Enjoy this conversation with Michael Wan and I on Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. Interconnected in a way we have not been before, and there's such a high degree of people who are seen through all of these attempts and villages that if someone was talking about, like you know, whenever social security numbers came out, like we don't want to do this, this is you know the the, the road to hell is is is, is paved with good intentions. Don't do that, like you know, most people are like ah, don't worry about it. But we have enough experience right now, we as the collective, to be like, okay, we know how this game works. Now is the time. Now is our now is our window of opportunity. How long does it last? Uncle Mike. Mystic Mark, how are you, my friend? I'm wonderful. Whatever we just did worked. You're coming through on both channels. Well, that's what we like to hear. When all when in doubt, reboot. <laughs> <laughs> so what's going on? You had you had some homework for me. I tried my best to to look at it. I didn't realize it was gonna be an hour forty five video, so I got, you know, thirty minutes into it. But but what else is going on? We'll get to the video in a moment. I, I'll bring up the speed. Last night, I recorded I recorded a presentation, which hopefully I'll be able to upload to YouTube this afternoon. I should be able to be in a spot with internet access. Awesome. And it is a video going deep into the Herkimer basketball. Right on. I gave you credit. I said, you're the one who brought it across my desk. Well, technically, the human calculator Scott Flansburg deserves some credit because he brought it. He put it on my desk. But all right, I'll, I, I'm happy I, to be the middleman. I uh, I went deep into uh, Scott, and oh, I'm excited about it. I think it's 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 good stuff. I call it. I'm trying to remember what I titled it because I just made the thumbnail. From ball net to the living internet. Right. So ball net being. I know. You know, you know. <laughs> for those who don't know, ball net being just what we're what we use right now. You know, it's this internet, all everything which the internet encompasses, good and bad, and looking at that as an inversion of something that's true, and and so 
that's what I kind of explore in that presentation, beginning with with Scott or with with the fact that Scott Flansburg is introducing to the collective the the idea of Herkimer, New York being actually the the birthplace of basketball. And so I, I went a little bit deeper into that. What what he claims is that yes, Nia Smith, he wrote down the rules and but the first game played with a metal hoop and woven net that took place in Herkimer. And so I kinda tied that in with Scott being the human calculator and talking about that as a different relationship into number, just like our conversation last week. And I got a little bit deeper into the, the base 20 number. Uh, you know how to pronounce it. I don't know how to pronounce it. Oh, base number, yes. the base 20 number system. And, you know, the side note on that, what I found interesting was there were looking at the cultures that have used base 20 numbering. You know, it's very interesting. We have the Celtic culture, we have the Mayan, the Aztec, and then also base 20 is used quite frequently in Francis Bacon's King James Bible. And so just kind of looking at, at all of those sort of things, but then examining what, looking at the internet as ultimately being about number, and then looking at the idea that Humanity had, could have many different relationships with number and then going a step further and tying it into this generation of, of, of people who have been born since the smartphone and how their minds are during the developmental process, the neural pathways and so forth are, are mirrors of, of the hierarchy in which, in which, the, the, the technological architectural structure of the internet works and then comparing that to permaculture, just talking about moving from one to the other and seeing where they're similar and where they're different. So I was really excited about that. And I, I, I give thanks to you for, for the inspiration because wow. it was here is where all of those ideas were really began to take, to take form. Well, you're welcome. I'm more than happy to do that. And cool. I'm a, I'll add that to my resume. There we go. You add it to your resume. It's it's uh, it's growing long. It's growing long. So let's talk about that video for a second, and I'll tell you why I sent it to you. Okay. okay. So why don't you explain for the listeners exactly what it is or what you've seen so far? Sure. So this guy, I'm not sure his YouTube name. We'll get that in the episode links. But he does a really great job putting documentaries slash audio podcast together about the fall of civilizations. And the gist of it I get is that he, he travels and he goes and he researches ancient cultures and their rise and then their fall. So for the video you sent me, it was specifically focused on the Aztec culture. And, uh, and yeah, unfortunately I wasn't as prepared as I should be, but I got through the first 30, 40 minutes or so. And I got to give the guy credit. He does a great job telling the story. And it was interesting. Right when they had me hooked in on the Mayan sort of wheel that they found under the city, Mexico City, those the construction crew finds this like big three meter 
in diameter disc of a goddess decapitated naked with skulls and snakes around her. And it, I mean, you saw it, so I don't have to, but it was carved very intricately. Not, uh, not anything to bat an eye at. A very, very well-detailed stone carving. They find this, and then at that point in the documentary, kind of shifts the clock back to, to all the way in the beginning, which, you know, some people might not agree with that model of uh, the universe that we all evolved from rats, but that's kind of the <laughs> supposition he makes is that there was an asteroid and, and, you know, the only thing that survived were these little mammals and that's, those are our proud ancestors or whatever he says. So that, that part threw me off, but everything else was great. And I did appreciate the dinosaur CGI. I remember right. when that came out uh, when I was a kid, that was like a big, that was a big thing. They had like the the never before seen, re, you know, dynamically reproduced dinosaurs on the screen. <laughs> Using source material from cave paintings. Found <laughs> yeah. Exactly like men millions of years ago saw. So so let me go in and, and, and give you my motivation for for why I sent this to you. And and, and I, lo- I love that, that introduction you just gave. And the way I would kind of describe it or describe the video series, and, this, and I'm only, I'm probably about an hour into it. I'm only an hour into it. But are you familiar with, I think the YouTube channel is Atlantis Gardens, and the guy's name is Robert Sefer, S-E... Boy, do I ever know him. So... So he feels, so this guy feels like a more mainstream version of kind of what Robert does. Okay. Right? Like it's, it's like, as you said, like it's built upon the mainstream understanding of, of biological evolution and all that sort of stuff. And the history, which he uses is, 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 it's not so much focused upon the esoteric as Atlantic, Atlantis Gardens does, but at least I, I got the feeling like they, they kind of felt like they were they, they were in the same sort of they're in the same continuum, mm. same continuum of looking at information and stories. And to be quite honest, I haven't watched a video like this for years. It's really but, well done, and I, I'll it's just well done. It's enjoyable, right? Yeah, and the only reason you know I pointed that out is to to go you know show how far at length they went to give you the history of that area. I mean they. they they start with the meteor impact that killed the they, dinosaurs. So, and uh, exactly like that's like the preface part. And just like you, when there was the line where it says there, it was talking about after the impact and the small mammals crawled out of the holes, and then every mammal, including us, to come. These are ancestors. <laughs> I, I, I laughed at that one too. I, I was like, I don't know if that's the truth, my friend. I mean, who knows? I wasn't there, but I don't know. I think we'll give them a pass. Well, give them a pass because, you know, we, I mean, this is how I, I try to approach at least is you take your information with an understanding of the context of how it's, how it's of who and where it's being delivered from. And, and so once you recognize that and you're like, okay, well, this is where it comes from. You don't have to then throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can, you can take the information and say like, okay, well, this, this, this maybe uh, doesn't doesn't align with with my understanding, but that doesn't mean that the whole 
the the entire presentation, the entire video is is for naught. But but it is always beneficial to know you know where where this where the the mindset of the person who is behind it. So the reason I sent this to you, the reason I sent this to you, and and, and we probably are just going to touch a little bit about about it right now because neither one of us had seen the whole thing. And what might be interesting is if you could include in the show notes the link and we could talk about it a little bit more yeah. uh, next week. Oh, I'm definitely going to finish it. So, yeah we, yeah, we ought to do that. So I've got a friend. i got a friend in Lancaster, Farmer Ben, and he is the one who sent it to me, and he's a very big fan of the of the entire video series and, and the rise and fall of, of civilization. And he is also someone who is, very intrigued by the Talakiel tale. Right. Okay. And so he told me he was watching this video. I just talked to him a couple of days ago. And he said that he was enjoying it. And it was, I think it's, it's episode number nine in this video series. And he was watching it and, and enjoying it. And then all of a sudden, so I'm going to kind of let the cat out of the bag for you. I'm going to tell, this is why I'm sending it to you what I want to hear. Uh, but I, I, I do want to say this. I saw there was a part two, and I don't know if the piece of information I'm going to share with you is in part one or part two. And that could be another whole uh, hour and a half uh, video. But, but nonetheless, what Ben told me was the, the video goes into a conversation with someone else. So – the person speaking is different than the narrator. Mm-hmm. And this person begins to tell the story of the the story of, of the beginning of the fall of the Aztec Empire. Because where you and I are right now in the video is they're they're creating or they're telling the story of how the Aztec Empire began following the Mayan, following the Toltec, but I always thought it was the other way around, but I'm no Mesoamerican scholar, so I don't really trust my, my time frame. Mm, yeah, I got that. I, I noticed that, too. I, I got further than the dinosaurs. Right, but, I knew that was that was further. But I, so, I was like, yeah, I, I was confused at that, too, how the Toltecs preceded the more ancient Aztecs. Well, I mean, again, like I... The, the, the groupings in this Mexico Valley, which you're talking about, in my mind, from how I understand it, there's that a general term which they call the Olmecs. And then I thought that the Olmecs then became the Toltecs, and the Tolte- or, or then the Toltecs moved into that area, and then it was the Mayan, and then it was the Aztec. And this guy says he doesn't mention Olmec at all. He doesn't mention those enormous heads. Right. He goes, so that was kind of skipped over. And so, again, I, I don't know. I, I, did, and I did not have the capability to have Internet access while watching. I downloaded the video uh, and then watched it where I, don't have, where I don't have the Internet access. But if I did, I would have probably paused it and I would have looked at some other sources and just kind of see what the, the general consensus is of the timeline uh, time of, of civilizations. But – but that's not the point. That's not the point. The point <laughs> where I want to go with is later on in this conversation I was talking about, or which Ben was telling me about, the person who is speaking is describing the, I think it might be, God, I don't know if it's the final king or the final ruler, but, but towards the end, and his top advisor, his top advisor, and really the, the architect, 
behind the rise in the human sacrifice program, if you will, that the Aztec culture participated in. That this that this guy that this guy's name is Tlaxiel. I mean, we're talking a thousand years ago. And so he was the high priest, and he was the one who will go and will kidnap you know, hundreds of thousands, or maybe it's tens of thousands of people. I haven't heard it. I'm just hearing it. I've just heard Ben's secondhand description of it. So the, I need to listen to exactly the details that they said. But just this whole sort of idea of, of names and titles and what does, how does that change the narrative in terms of what we're looking at? And I certainly don't have any sort of conclusions where I want to go with it. I'm intrigued to delve deeper into that story and see how this adds into it. And what could also even be, what, what could be fun, and I hadn't even thought about it, have we identified already maybe some some potential holes in the the or or biases in the way that that this presentation has been has been presented, you know, with, with the dinosaurs and the we all came from rats and and maybe the the skipping over the Olmec civilization and so forth. So I don't know how that comes in, but that's what I'm excited to to talk to you about. So maybe we'll get to that next week. Right. Yeah, it's saying here that Talakiel means a man of strong emotion in the Nahual. And I don't know if if I'm jumping the gun or something, so stop me if I'm going too far. But, no, please, please. But it also says that he was, during the the reign of Montezuma I, Talakiel instigated what was known as the Flower Wars. I Have bet you, you that's what we're going to hear. And then also what you were talking about in tandem with this, he increased the level and prevalence of human sacrifice during a period of natural disasters that started in 1446, according to Diego Duran, who's the guy that's mentioned in that documentary that we watched as the the Dominican friar who was very sympathetic Ooh. to the indigenous people and did a, a lot to record their culture. They did sort of point at a potential bias in their record keeping, but what I found very interesting was how they allowed the indigenous people to create the art and the illustrations that comprise this Historia General of New Spain, right? That's what they called it at the time. But the the illustrations are absolutely just like amazing. Yeah, they're like really high talent, like high caliber artistic. And you know, we're talking about people that us, we assume didn't have access to this type of artistic material, or at least we we assume that. But it is really interesting to also note that the word Toltec in this culture means artist. So right, right, right. Exactly. There's a big emphasis on art and and spirituality, and and art being a you know very important thing. It's not doesn't seem like they they hold it in anything but a high reverence. Well, if if I if I recall the 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 illustrations were done by the by the the peoples who were living during Diego's time. So this would right. have been a different civilization than the Toltecs. So the Toltecs, I don't think, were but the, still, were the, but but still, it's a very artistic. It, 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 I I was fascinated to see all of that, and I do agree. And I did I did hear 
the narrator mentioned a few times. He's like, listen, like the information we have, it's all kind of limited. We've got this, and the, these guys are going to have this bias, and then it's based upon what was and was not said by the people who remembered stories which occurred 20 years ago. And so there, there was definitely a good caveat put right there. There was a good caveat put right there. Right. And, you know, the so the Tilakiel who I have spoken about as it relates to the Susquehanna, I read, and, and I believe it is his own, or a website which is connected to someone who is close with him. It defines Tilakiel as meaning the advisor of the advisors hmm. or the advisor to the grandfather. So maybe the advisor to the council. So it's fascinating for me to hear the, the other definition in Nawal. Now, being the, a man with great passion or a great man with great with great emotion. Mm, yeah, and I'm I'm looking at another website that seems to show this great elder, the one that I know you've talked about in your videos, the one who famously met with the Dalai Lama and you know all, traveled all over the world. It, what's interesting that stands out is it's on a website called ColinAndrews.net. And there's a very well-known archaeologist and anthropologist who studies Atlantis named Andrew Collins. So, I don't know. There, all, so, and what's also funny is, and I don't know, like I don't have enough of a, of a context to, to, to know if this is just like normal or if this is just a coincidence. But much of the history we have of this comes from a book accredited to John Smith, which, which came out before the John Smith map of Virginia was published like a few years later, but they're, but they're, they're, they're meant to go in tandem. And that was also called the general history. It's called the general history of Virginia, not the general history of New Spain. But I'm like, is general history, like, is that, is that, is that a coincidence there? Or is that kind of like a general term, which at that period of time, that anything that is written about the written by the the during the age of discovery, as they call it, written by the discoverers, do they call all of their history books general history? That I don't know. Mm. But, well, the uh, military like, connotation of the word general certainly makes my ears perk up. Like general history could be different than you know your actual history. Right. One of the things. So, I mean, and I think we all need to do that when I talk about it. When I talk in the way that I'm about to speak, it is not my intention to to give the impression that the whole world revolves around Mike, but in a certain way it does. But that's true for all of us. Like as we are trying to understand all of the information in the outer world, our point of reference is always going to be our own experiences. So from that level, like it is all about the individual. So when I'm so I'm about to give this like a uh, little piece or additional piece to this puzzle. This is very Mike focused, but it helps me kind of look at what we're discussing. And so what I'm going to talk about now is the God who was in the carving of that great wheel that you described about 10 minutes ago mm. that was uncovered beneath the, the roadways in Mexico city in the late 1970s. Do you remember the name of, of the God? It was a goddess actually. The goddess, right. Oh, no, I wish I did it. I thought it started with an H, but I just... It does. I I remember how, like I said before, how like stunningly well-carved it was. Obviously, they had put it under like museum lighting at this point, but yeah, it was very, very oh, intricate. 
and you're like, how do I, uh, I became curious just in the practical aspect, like, you know, how do they do that? And it's right. similar with a lot of the, like the, the, it's, I can't think of what the codex is called, but it's what the Mayan calendar, whenever you see images, it's, it's similar to that and that type of, of carving. Mm. So do you remember how they described the goddess? As and decapitated, like, naked, and, and surrounded by skulls and snakes. That's all I remember. Exactly. Does that kind of, it reminded me in a very general sense of, and, you know, probably people who are experts are going to roll their eyes, but uh, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm not, but it reminded me of Kali. Okay. You know, and do you know yeah, why, yeah. what, so Kali being the, the Vedic kind of goddess of destruction from ancient India. She's not shown decapitated per se, but with the skulls and, and just kind of like the general feeling of at least how that was described. So I found, and they said that it, that it was a very, was it, was brutal the word which they used to describe the goddess? If it wasn't brutal, it was something in that, in that, um, in that family, which also can be used as, um, a description of Kali, and, and granted, within these cultures, like it's it's not just brutality for that sake, but it fits into a larger a larger philosophy of life, and 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 how you know these people fit into those cycles. Right. So what what I wanted to what I wanted to go into with that, which I found so interesting, and and she's also the guy. Uh, a symbol of her was the hummingbird. What I found interesting is. I've got a personal connection to Nawal. Nawal being the language which was spoken there. Nawal is, from what I understand it, is only a, it is still spoken by by um, a small percentage of people who are living on Earth right now. But it's one of the most ancient languages, and you know it would be rare, it would be uncommon for just like a regular person who does not live in the area or, or is part of the, the lineage where Nawal is spoken, that you would have access to that, right? You know, it's, it's like the odds aren't high. Mm. And when I was, when, when my boys were young, there was a woman who became very, very close to my family because she was, she helped a lot with, with the childcare when, when the children were very young and she became a part of the family. And her story is she came to Lancaster from, from Mexico because, and she was aware of Lancaster because when she was growing up, there was a professor of anthropology at a college in Lancaster who would come every summer and stay in her village because it was a village where they still spoke Nahuatl and he was studying Nahuatl. And so she became, he stayed with her family. So he became part of her family uh, in a way because he would come every summer for, I don't know, a period of time. And so there's this link between, I always look at it as, as like a, a living symbol in my own personal life to a connection, which I have, you know, one, two standard degrees away, but it's still a connection, which I would have to that, to that culture and for whatever that would mean. But what was, and I knew that, and I've always kind of thought that about, about Irene or Tia, as we used to call her. But her village, her village, she, would des she described to me where she grew up. She, it was uh, a small village in the mountainous region somewhere in southern central Mexico. It was called 
Whitsy Land. And Whitsy, and this is where I was at, the reason I was asking if you remember the name of the goddess, I don't, but I do know is the first two syllables are Whitsy. Like Whitsy Coddle or something like that. And I'm like, she lives in a village which is named after that that goddess. Huh. I just thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. But by no means, by no means is is was was or is Tia a brutal skull and snake embodiment of a human being. So, <laughs> so I, I want to put that out on the record. So the whole story, the whole thing, this video has me very, very excited and energized to that that part of the world and that history, and and then also how that connects back into the Susquehanna and the sort of stuff which we're talking about nowadays. And oh, and here would be the last thing, and I think we talked about this last week, was then going back to Herkimer and Herkimer as the the home of of or the birthplace of modern basketball, basketball with an iron with an iron rim and woven and woven net. Well, this goes this ties into the Aztec ball game. Remember, we were talking about that, and when you go and you see what the field. What the court, that's what they call it. They don't call it a field. What the ball court looked like, um, it has a very strong similarity, at least in my opinion, to a basketball net because there are these hoops that are, I'm going to say 10 feet, but I don't know how high they are, but I know they're pretty far off the ground that from what I gather how the game was played, like you're throwing either a human head or some sort of ball-like device the two teams are trying to do that. So we've got that link going on as well. Mm, right. So that's about all I got with that. So I, I don't have, it's, we're just kind of, I guess, painting the, painting the scenery for what we're going to learn when we go and listen to the next part. Okay. Excuse my pause there. I just, I, I didn't want to cut you off because I, I watched a documentary that, surprisingly fits in with exactly this documentary, The Land of the Missing Gods by Freddie Silva. It's on uh, Gaia TV, and Tara and I watched it a night or two ago with the intention of learning more about Moo because she's been sort of interested in that culture, the Easter Island culture and and their connections yeah and and their their connections to hawaii where she's been spent multiple years there she actually told me yesterday that she was in hawaii when that bomb threat thing went off and the u.s government sent out that alert that that hawaii was about to get hit with a missile you remember that story? I kind of remember that. Oh my, so much has happened in the last I know. 10 I, years. I'm like, that sounds so familiar. It I was like quite... the year before, I think it was the year before the you know whole pandemic thing really started rolling. But I remember that and it was that same feeling of like, wow, I can't believe I forgot that when she told me about it. And she's like, yeah, the, you know, the government texted, texted us and I just got a coffee, so... I went and I, I sat out on the back porch and contemplated my life until we realized that it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> Just very nonchalant. <laughs> I mean, so I want to go back to hear where the documentary connects, but I want to throw like another thing. Okay, um, do you remember? This is probably maybe seven or eight years ago. So 
before before what I think was before what you're talking about, the, that missile story, there was a pretty big earthquake off the coast of Peru. I want to say like maybe in the eighth level of the Richter scale. And there was, there was a big concern of the tsunami that was going to come. Mm. And the biggest concern was like what it was going to do to Hawaii. And there were, the, there was a period of like, I'm going to just pull this number, I'm going to just pull this number out of the air, but I'm going to say like maybe like 18 hours, 12 hours from when the earthquake occurred to when the tsunami would hit Hawaii. So there's this, this window, there was this window of time where kind of like what you're describing when, when Tara was sitting out on the porch, where Everyone was just waiting. They didn't know what the tsunami would be because you don't know the size of the tsunami until it hit until it hits land because the the energy wave is below the surface of the ocean mm. and it's not until it hits uh, a shallower level that you can see the height of the wave. And so I'm just imagining what it must be like. So that would be two times or where the people who are on Hawaii and in Hawaii, this seems to be very similar to the technique which is often used within like POWs to break them on where they would get someone, take them out of the cell, lie up, stand them up in front of the age, a firing squad, blindfold them, say, ready, aim. So the person goes through the entire internal process of, okay, this is going to be it. They're going to shoot me. And then the, the, the capture the captors are call it off and then they bring the person back into their cell. But there's this 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 process which happens to the human being where you're like brought to the edge of like really thinking you're gonna die. Like I'm at you know, something bad is gonna happen and all you can do is wait and then nothing happens. Yeah. Like this kind of like tightening, tightening, tightening of consciousness and fear and all this sort of stuff. And then ah, there's nothing. Like, you know, this this tension and relief. And there certainly seems to be, you know, just using these two, these two examples, the missile and then the, the, the potential tsunami. And the tsunami turned out to be nothing. Like, I think it was like, it was a little bit of water came up and maybe it was, it was noticeable, but it did not live up to the expectation of how it was hyped. Mm. And so I'm like, I'm curious, is, is that, Part of like you know what I would think of would be very much a you know a psychological operation on the people in Hawaii that it seems and then how and does that tie into where you're going to go with like the the Lamaria and all this sort of stuff? Well, that I I can't say no. I, maybe you could help me find that as I'm going through it, but well, no, I don't know. I didn't watch the documentary. No, I don't hear no. what you're going to say about it. No, no. I, I Tara just brought that up and and it was definitely one of those moments where it's like wow i can't believe i forgot about that because it was a big yeah it's exactly as you described it was in my opinion especially now after what's happened in the past couple of years it was definitely a staged event to induce fear almost like a rite of passage that's like kind of what i thought about when you mentioned like fear 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 tightening up tightening up and then release you know like when they put you in front of a firing squad, it's almost like the, you know, the types of rites of passage that they would do to, and still do, I mean, certain cultures to teenagers, you know, they get them all in a situation where they're afraid, they think they're 
life's in danger and then the masks come off and oh it's our elders and they're just running us through this you know well, this ceremony what, I think, and, and that was kind of my point like you know what is that dance and that and you know i mean that is a rhetorical question but then also when we go and we look at it from a larger scale and say that this seems to be part of something within the initiatory process which which seemingly benefits the human being that rite of passage and, and i would say we could even compare this to to the story i told to the freemasons like this is an initiation like you know there was this like build up of fear. Are they going to sacrifice Uncle Mike? You know, all of these sort of things. And like, there's that build up, that build up. And then like you move through it and it's like, it's never as bad as what you think it is. And just like, you know, learning to, to have poise within with, you know, when something is just an idea and it hasn't necessarily presented itself. And you're just like thinking about, Oh my God, what's going to be? So there's, there, there, there's a, I don't have an answer to it as it relates to Hawaii, but I find what you're bringing up immensely personal and and an intriguing thought. Agreed. So, yeah, I guess that connects because Tara has been to Hawaii, and that's where a lot of this interest comes from. And also, you know, we've been learning about the Mayan dream spell calendar, which, funny enough, she told me last night that, Last year, when we were both embarking on learning about it, was the 33rd anniversary since Jose Arguelles created it. So I don't know what that means, but I'm sure the Gematria people out there will hit me up with a message. But Is there a specific date tied to when he created it, or just like a general year, like this is the year, she, or when uh, it was released? I'm going to say she, Tara probably knows, but she just was more vague when she Gotcha. She told me, so should have asked. But anyways, we watched this really awesome documentary, if we can call it that, more of a like a visual podcast. You know, Freddie Silva kind of sits at this couch and, and they take you through basically their theory of how after the flood, you have all of these stories throughout human cultures post-flood of a group of seven sages who come back and, and rebuild the culture. And Freddie sort of traces them through Egypt, through Australian history, through Japanese culture, through Native American culture, South American, Mesoamerican, and just shows these like post-flood stories and how they're all very similar. <laughs> and he connects them to this Basically, this place that is now submerged, but if you go to Easter Island and you look at where some of the um, Maori heads are facing, I believe that's the right term for them, where they're facing, some are facing the sunrise, South America, but then there's another group that are facing this spot in the ocean. And what Freddie Silva says is that these were facing this much, much larger island that existed before the flood. And, and this is who, you know, eventually populated the world. These were the advanced people. And they shared this sort of etymological tie with the term Nagi, right? Nagi meaning snake in some languages. Naki, Anunnaki. 
So they're basically talking about this like brotherhood of the serpent, these seven sages of the serpent. And, you know, they go at great length to describe all the different connections. I can't retell them all, but it's so interesting because just a few weeks ago, I found a book called The Return of the Serpents of Wisdom. And it does exactly this same thing. It shows you the connections of this snake culture, this snake philosophy even that passes through cultures. And, you know, Freddie Silva connects that to electric earth energy, to lyric currents and whatnot, which is really fitting considering the conversations we've had about ley lines and and maybe even what the megaliths are doing. You know, we talk about how they're, they were sacrificing people on these power spots that maybe were deactivated and the only way they could you know, desperately try to turn these things back on was by trying to appease the gods who were no longer there, you know, doing these sacrifices. It's just very, very strange, you know, and then we have all of this negative uh, association with serpents almost to keep people away from that information, keep them ignorant of it. You know, it reminds me too of, you know, those snake pits. I don't remember if they have them in Pennsylvania or not, and maybe I'm just crossing streams here, but I know that that's a part of certain cultures in Central and South America that they would have these big snake pits. And, and you know, to keep the snakes out of their village, they would just, like, gather up all the snakes on a certain day of the year and throw them in this pit. And they do the same thing in, in Kentucky. To this day, there are little pockets where they go around and on certain days of the year they'll gather up rattlesnakes and throw them in a pit all right <laughs> it's almost as if you, you you those words that you just shared that whole all of the things that you just you just shared is like and it's on a silver platter and you are walking towards me and you're handing that because it's so friggin' perfect. Like you don't, you're not even gonna imagine where I'm gonna go with this. All right, we got some, we got some really, really good things with the way you just said. So let me ask you this: Have you finished reading *Return of the Serpents of Wisdom*? No. How far or have you even started reading it yet? No, I, I've just, you know, it's, it's, it's a really great book for someone who just wants to peruse through it's very a lot of illustrations it's divided up in a way where you don't have to read it front to back but it's on my short list i've been working on uh, michael hoffman's book because we all are right, definitely yeah. i'm not putting any pressure by <laughs> That's asking right. questions i'm just trying to understand where you are so that i can speak to you understanding because i've read it four times oh wow okay <laughs> okay let me tell you why i read it four times so this is probably 2016, and I am just beginning to gather all of the information, which would eventually become what I call the Susquehanna mystery. Like, I am, like, deep, deep in the research phase, all right? That was probably, like, a nine-month period. And during that nine-month period, and I'd already been kind of deep into it, I'm trying to understand, like, all of the different things that are popping up. And I went into a week 
You know anyone who really likes to talk about going into the used bookstore? Myself. <laughs> yeah, that's the one who I'm talking about. So the used bookstore I went to, and I think it may have been the very first time I ever went there. It was the used bookstore that you went to when you came and visited me in Lancaster. Ah. Dog Star Books. So I'm walking around Dog Star Books, and I just, you know, I, I was like, all right, I'm in a used bookstore, and and it kind of, all used bookstores, they kind of, or not all of them, but definitely some of them have this real, you know, this mystical sort of, almost like a graveyard sort of feeling, like, you know, you're in the, this is a, a living symbol of in-between worlds. And I hold walk your breath. around. Uh, hold your breath or, or what have you. So I'm walking around there. I'm like, I know there's a book there for me. And that was the book that I found. I'm walking around. I'm like, that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. And as soon as I saw that, the, the Serpents of Wisdom, The Return of the Serpents of Wisdom, that was when I got the book. And that's, that, that helped me so much. It helped me so much in terms of at least framing up Susquehanna Mystery Story. And first read it, I read it just like you did. I, I, I picked and choose what chapters I was going to read based upon, at that time, like I wanted to get in context of, in context to the research I was doing. And there's a whole section on the Rosicrucians. Because right. that book goes through and it names all of these different peoples and cultures and so forth. And then it, it shows how they're connected to what, what the guy, I think he uses the language uh, Great White. Does he use the language Great White Brotherhood in it? Uh, yeah, I think that's, word? Yeah, I that's, think that's what, what they, they call it. Yes, yes. So, so, all right, where do I want to go with this? So, so the nature, and this is, this is, this is so fascinating in terms of what we've already been talking about. The nature of reading that book, I like think it's one, the, if I was going to give a, a style critique on it was that it's not footnoted, correct? Yeah, neither is this edition. And I, and I remember, I remember feeling, I'm just like, okay, well, you, you, you say this statement. And I'm like, well, where does that come from? Like, you know, I, mm. that was in the, whenever I, I don't see footnotes, that's what goes on the back of my mind. I doesn't like, I don't throw it out. I'm just saying like, well, you're not telling me where this came from. But nonetheless, what the author does, what the author does is he presents a very, very positive perspective of just as what you said, the snake symbology and the serpent symbology, which particularly, and, and my, when you begin to study anything or learn anything, the first thing that you read sets your point of reference. And so that tends to be, whether it's right or wrong, like if this is just how human beings work, they're being very conscious not to do so, is like, that's your point of reference. Like, that's why it's so important to to be to be ahead of the story because in, in in news and propaganda is because the first thing people hear is going to be their point of reference for then how they understand like additional pieces of information. And so for me, in reading about all of the groups and all of the symbology which this guy would send, I was already familiar with them from I don't know like ten years of conspiracy research. You know, maybe beginning with like David Icke and and his perspective of the serpent. And he talks about the exact same friggin' people from a completely different perspective because he doesn't say that they're the good guys. He paints them as the bad guys. Mm. But he's talking about the same people and he's using the same symbols 
that it, what's the author's name? It's Mark Ameru with a P. There's a Pinkham. A Pinkham. Yes. Okay. His his so, initials uh, are Map. Map it yes. out. Yes. Map it out. And so the reason I'm bringing this up, it's not to say that this person's wrong or that person's wrong, but more so of the point of reference of like me or you or any sort of person who's like, I'm just trying to figure out what the hell's going on. You know, I don't know what team I'm supposed to be rooting for. But I don't think that's you know that's a very dualistic sort of mentality. But let's couple let's couple this back to the conversation we had about about Talakiel because I was like, well, there's this one Talakiel who we talked about, or at least who I've spoken about, who I put up on a on a pedestal. I put up on a pedestal because the story I was told about him first was like very much on on the pedestal, and then I heard this other story. I'm like, well, actually, the true Talakiel is the uh, is like the the architect behind this this human sacrifice campaign. And then, you know, you, you have to go and begin to look like, well, are they the same? What What is going on here? In the same way, I would suggest that this role of serpents and these serpents of wisdom who go and, and, and feed civilizations, the, the civilizations on Earth after the flood. And so again, not to say this is this is the good guy, this is the bad guy, but to recognize this kind of duality that if if you're actually going to go and look at a variety of sources, you're going to go and say, let's look at all these different perspectives. So, and I think that that probably ties a lot into even the thing which we're saying with the initiation in terms of fear, because it is also this trip too, as you said in your example that in a lot of, of traditional cultures that during the rite of passage, the people who are scaring the individuals who are going through the rite of passage, they're actually their family members. They're actually the ones who really care about them the most. So there's this, you know, you could see how that is in play. Like it depends upon how you look at it. Oh, look at the scary thing that's coming after me. Oh, it's actually not that scary. It's but it's being scared for you. So all of these, all of these different qualities are in this this myth which we're talking about. And there's one last thing I want to say before I give you an opportunity to respond. So one of the things which intrigued Talakiel, so, uh, the, the modern Talakiel, the Talakiel who is coming to the Susquehanna River and studying the, the, the petroglyphs. Was the fact that was the fact that there is a a creek. It's, all, it's a place and a creek, so it's a place name and it's a creek name, and it's called in, in Lancaster and it's called Kokalco. Okay, and there is the Kokalco Creek. So there's this place called like a physical location which is called Kokalco, and then there is the Kokalco Creek. And if you follow the Kokalco Creek, it eventually empties into the Conestoga, and then the Conestoga eventually empties into the Susquehanna. And where the, Sus where the Conestoga empties into the Susquehanna is literally where the petroglyphs are. Okay? Are you following me? Mm -hmm. All right. So on the petroglyphs, one of the most interesting petroglyphs is a – this isn't actually – I wouldn't call this a traditional petroglyph carved into – the stone are are two feet, like a, a set of feet, and they're in human scale. It's not like these tiny, like one inch feet, which are meant to be images of or, or uh, a representation of feet. What is found there 
are feet in human scale where you could go and put your own feet in them. So it's asking you to stand there. Almost in the same way that you described the heads on Easter Island, like pointing, pointing in a certain um, direction, asking you to look in that direction. What is the direction of the feet? It's up the, it's up the Conestoga. So this is where it all gets, uh, I'm going to tie this all in together. And, I, and I, I gathered this in that book of the Serpents of Wisdom, because in the Serpents of Wisdom, it names both, there's a chapter which names the Rosicrucians as, as I believe the phrase they use, the European elite Serpents of Wisdom. And then in another section, it talks about the city of Tula, the last city of the Toltec civilization, and they also being Serpents of Wisdom. And so the story which has been given to me about Tolakiel, the, the, the modern Tolakiel who came to, to the Susquehanna, he is from that tradition, that, that, that Toltec tradition. And he was interested specifically in something which is known as the Four Feathers migration story of, that ties back directly to the fall of Tula. So now we're going to tie this all. We're going to tie this in on two levels. On the Cocalco Creek, and the Cocalco Creek goes down into the Conestoga, and the Conestoga goes right down into the petroglyphs. And in the petroglyphs is where you have the feet. And there's also a petroglyph of a man with very large hands, which Tulakiel said is Humak, who is the last king. It's the symbol of the last king of Tula. Um, is where we find the Ephrata Cloister. And the Ephrata Cloister is the first Rosicrucian permanent colony in the New World. So the Rosicrucians, once, once the, the, the Kelpius Cave collapsed and, and that, that the, the monks of the Wissahickon, 30 years later, that tradition set up their, per, their permanent colony, and that was Ephrata on the Cocalco Creek. On the Cocalco Creek, and the Cocalco Creek goes right to the Petroglyphs, which has that Tula connection. This is what was the, this is the piece which really, really cemented it for Tlachiel. Cocalco, as it's used in Pennsylvania, is explained as an Algonquin word, or having an Algonquin, from the Algonquin language family, and it means den of snakes. <laughs> okay? In Nahuatl, the language of the Tula, of the of the Aztec, of the Mesoamerican, okay? Completely different language families, or at least we're told they're completely different language families. There is a word which is almost a phonetic uh, match to that, and it's Cocalco, and it means house of snakes. In the Mesoamerican, uh, or maybe more so the Aztec origination story, it happened at the den of snakes, at the house of snakes. So there is a connection between the snakes and the den of snakes and Kokalko and all of these serpents of wisdom. So what you, that's why I say like you just gave me a cake on a silver platter because that hit on so many levels. <laughs> what are your thoughts? I think it's absolutely no... I mean, it's fascinating and it's no coincidence, you know, I think that it's funny, it connects to so many things that we see in America 
when we talk about, you know, where these occult orders take root, they tend to be the, you know, leading students of actual history, <laughs> following up on these things and leaving the rest of us in the dark to play with, you know, the, the dust and, and, you know, the, the things that are regarded as general history, you know, mm-hmm. but yeah, it, it's interesting. It connects to a conversation I had with a guy named Nathan Isaac who's put together a podcast called Penny Royal, the magic and mystery of place. And I think you would love it. If, if I were you, Mike, with your internet situation, after you watch these documentaries that we're going to watch, download the Penny Royal and listen to every episode, because this, that what they've done is very similar to what you've done for your area, you know, but they've focused in on this really particular part of Kentucky where a lot of strange things have happened, including a druidic, and this is why I'm making the connection, a group of Welsh magicians called the Gwandanic Order who chose to move their headquarters in 2004 from, you know, wherever, where's Wales, right? Sorry. <laughs> to Kentucky of all Where's places, Kentucky? Somerset, Kentucky, or okay. adjacent to it. And this is the what's it, the name of the order? Can you say it again? The Gwandanic, the Gwendenic order. It's like I, I believe it's G W E N N D Y Dinic Gwendenic. I think you know it's it's sort of right, a right, right, European right, right. word, but but yeah. yeah, just the conversation I had was very recent, and and yeah, so you just. You just spoke with this this person. What's yeah, Monday, Nathan Isaac. Nathan Isaac, because I've I've this quite a few people have suggested. They're like, dude, you got to listen to this. This is right up your alley. So I would love to go and listen. Well, to and that. and to your credit, I spoke very highly of you and said, you know, you ought to have Michael Wan in on one of these interviews because the way they put together the podcast is very much like an audio documentary. So they would okay. interview you and then take like your part of the conversation and edit it into like a sort of one piece. So you don't hear okay. Nathan ask questions when you're listening. You just hear sort of like Corey Daniels going through, you know, whatever he was prompted to say. But I think you'd be a good expert witness on some of these things, not witness, but, you know, someone to call in to, to shed light on um, these things because, you know, you definitely have done a lot of work in your neck of the woods to shed light on similar things that they're shedding light on in Kentucky. So what's funny is where I am right now in Baltimore, and I've talked about the, the, the water that's right behind the house, right? Mm -hmm. So that's called Gwen, Gwen's Falls. Right. G-W-Y-N-N-N. <laughs> so that sounds like the, you know, obviously there's a connection with that. And then probably about three or four miles away from here is Druid Hill Park. So, so though I'm not saying that there's a bunch of Druids who are hanging out around here or who, who these areas are named after, that Druid Hill Park was once a hill for the Druids. But I'm also not saying that it didn't happen. I'm just pointing out the, the similarity of what we're talking about. Yeah. Well, here's another thing to add to the similarity. So are you familiar with uh, the Promise software? Uh, certainly. So apparently a guy named Chuck Hayes, 
was a CIA agent that was a big part of creating the Promise software. He was like this sort of backwoods genius type who I guess I don't. I'm almost certain he invented it. I, I don't want to speak out of my knowledge base because this is all fresh off of my conversation with Isaac. But what was so fascinating was they were building this advanced computer software program in Somerset, Kentucky, for whatever reason. And, hmm. you know, it connects to maybe the geomagnetic anomaly, possibly, because they were building it in the back of a van <laughs> as the van was moving it or moving around. And we spent a lot of time talking about James Shelby Downard a little bit because in his podcast, they go into whether or not James Shelby Downard is a real person or not. They come to the conclusion. Oh, oh, I love this sort of question. Right. And, you know, that being, you know, something I just heard. And now I'm like, wow, I have a conversation with this guy, Hoffman, and scheduled for this month. And now I'm finding out, like, he might, there might be, like, questions that I want to ask him that like now I'm like you know what I mean like exactly exactly uh, you like Hoffman Hoffman the story is Hoffman studied underneath him right so it's it, that would be a real interesting sort of and I guess where guess where they were hanging out Downard and Hoffman where St. Petersburg Florida serious yes yes so St. Petersburg Florida apparently and, you know, we had a conversation off the air about Hoffman's potentially, you know, extreme views. And, you know, the reason why I kind of got a little bit like, oh, no, what am I going to talk to Hoffman about after I heard what they talked about on the Penny Royal? Because, you know, he was connected to this guy, William Brimstad or Grimstad, who was connected to what sounds like a hate group. You know, of course, I don't know if Nathan Isaac is just, you know, not going to go any further and sees that and doesn't look any further because, you know, they try to basically libel anybody who touches conspiracy theories that, you know, touch on, we'll say the Jews, right? Because that seems to be a big, big point mm -hmm. in this whole thing for Hoffman and, and Grimstad. And I guess Grimstad was associated with like KKK people like David Duke. So that's where I'm like, hmm, interesting. I should have, maybe I should have done a little more research. But nonetheless, I'm still going to interview Hoffman no matter what I find out. Because either way, his book, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare, is fascinating. And I think the interview will shed light on whether or not he was really who he says he is, you know, because that came into question in this documentary, audio documentary that Nathan Isaac put together. So I just found it really like sweeping that all of a sudden, you know, I'm talking to this guy and, you know, it's funny now that I really, I misspoke. I didn't talk about James Shelby Downard with Nathan because that's a part of his, the second season of his show, which isn't finished. So I decided Let's talk about the first season because I've listened to the whole thing. And so we sort of left that on the side and talked about it a little bit. But I listened to a couple episodes and yeah, they talked about James Shelby Downard and how it could be that he was sort of like a, 
a real person that was used as a literary device, and he wasn't actually behind the you know King Kill thirty three stuff, and it was a that that came from somewhere else, right? And and there were a couple different locations that were mentioned where James Shelby Downard was hanging out. One of them, Lake Havasu, Arizona, which is mentioned in secret societies and psychological warfare yes, as a pretty odd place. And then St. Petersburg, Florida, hanging out in an Airstream trailer there, recording these tapes that I think you could still find. Of uh, I, I think they're called the Serious Rising Tapes. And, okay. and James Shelby Downard is heard there being interviewed in several different conversations with, I I think, a few different people, too. Hoffman might be included. But the theory that I guess they're posing, and I haven't listened to the whole Penny Royal series, but the theory that they're posing is maybe it was sort of, yeah, like a literary device. This guy was a real guy, but he he was not the author. And who, who was the real author? Hoffman. Oh, Hoffman was the real author. Right. And, and, and they say this because of some things that Alina Friedland said, because she was also very familiar with James. I don't know Alina Friedland. She's like, she's sort of one of these secret space program type, you know, and, and those mm-hmm. people definitely are kind of, I don't know, not the most uh, straightforward, but. Okay. Yeah. So, and then Hoffman has this. I guess, legal trust called the Downard Trust. That's, you know, his reasoning for publishing Downard's work. Cause that came, you know, that was the question. Why wouldn't James Shelby Downard have published any of this stuff? Why is it always like Adam Parfait and then Michael Hoffman and then this other person, Alina Freeland, who, you know, writes James Shelby Downard's biography and publishes that on his behalf. You know, it's just sure. like, so the, the, the legitimacy of the several you know, works that James Shelby Downard is behind sort of came into question. But all of this connecting to a place in Kentucky where a lot of weird occult groups have gravitated to, much in the same way many occult groups have gravitated towards the Susquehanna River, and then to double the, you know, concurrence, there is this strange computer activity going on with this promise software with this advanced like you know they were looking into people's finances with that software and and trying to catch corrupt politicians with that software and that comes you know (laughs) in this area you know all the things you've pointed out about the internet's connection to susquehanna and the computer's connection to the susquehanna Mm -hmm. i just think you know the more we look in our American sort of zeitgeist here as the return of the serpents of wisdom calls it the land of the Phoenix, right? Or the, or the planet of the Phoenix. Is that what it is? Or the empire of the Phoenix, something like that. But yeah. Wow. Wow. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. I feel like I'm just like one of those uh, coin machines at the, at the, um, arcade that's just like shoveling coins down like i just there's not a lot of connections today i'm just keep piling the information on <laughs> well i think what we're seeing is how how you know you pile the information on and then we kind of like sift through it so it's funny you bring up st petersburg because obviously i i went down there so i went down there what like two weeks ago whenever it was i went down there and 
yesterday, or maybe it was two days ago, my friend Dale came down, who I know from, from Lancaster. He, he came down to like in Boston. And I met Dale. I met Dale right when I moved to Marietta, Pennsylvania, which is where I did the Susquehanna Mystery Research. That's where that was born and took place. And Marietta is the river town right in the Susquehanna parallel. And so he and I were just kind of reminiscing, or reminiscing, just just like looking. We were, we were at this place here in Baltimore and just kind of talking about the, the path which our knowing one another had taken. And that it was very kind of intertwined and so forth. And it, was, it was an interesting conversation, but the point I'm trying to make with it is, in, is a month before I went to, a month before I went to St. Petersburg. He went to St. Petersburg. He actually didn't go to St. Petersburg. He went about 40 minutes south of it. So we say St. Petersburg, but let's be more general and call it the west coast of Florida, kind of like, you know, southwestern coast of Florida. That's where St. Petersburg is located, maybe central Florida. But he made a trip down there and he started, and we were noticing, and we both saw the same person. There was a friend of ours who we also knew from Marietta and he and his family moved to um, this town, which is like 45 minutes south of St. Petersburg. That's why my friend Dale went down there. The reason why he went down there was because there was a funeral on the in his family on the North Carolina coast, and it was one of his aunts, and he was saying it was the first time in a long time that his family had gotten together. But the point I'm trying to make is we both took the, a parallel journey. We both went down to the southwest Florida, and it was a very family-oriented thing. And then we both we both spent time with this person who I was talking about, the third person, his name is Alan, who we both knew in Marietta. And Alan is both a documentary filmmaker. He's like he he's done documentaries for like like a travel channel or, or stuff like that. Like he works in the mainstream, but he does it he does it, you know, in a in a high level, if you will. But he is also incredibly interested. His true passion has to do with biodynamics, which is the Rudolf Steiner sort of approach towards understanding our relationship with with the ecosystem or the natural world and, you know, quote-unquote agriculture. And so the reason I'm bringing all of this up is there seems to be a, there seems to be a, a pattern. Like I was noticing with me, just me and Dale and this guy, Alan, and, the, and where we'd been in sense of place, but now you're adding in this other element with, with Hoffman and James Shelby Downard and I'm like, all right, you know, what's going on there? What is that place? What does that represent? I don't have an answer for it, but that's just what I'm noticing right now. Well, I definitely recommend listening. I'll send you the link. I'll, maybe I'll put it please in the do, description. Please do. Please do. What's the guy's, uh, what's the guy's name? Does he put out a regular podcast? And he has guests? So it's, uh, it's an audio documentary. So they do sort of like, seasons recorded all in a, in advance and then release it so they're in gotcha. the, the run of the the second season right now which discusses really like in detail more of what they found in the first season and makes all these connections to the people like james shelby downard you know they spend a lot of time giving you the sort of scenery 
of Kentucky and all the high strangeness in this one area in the first season. And then it seems like the second season they're focusing more on the events, places, people, timeline, that sort of thing. And, uh, yeah. and you said it's Somerset, Kentucky? Yep, which is right right above the sort of border, border of Tennessee, kind of where Knoxville, Tennessee is. And, and it's right next to the Daniel Boone National Forest where they see the dog man, hmm. which is something we talked about, I think, a couple episodes ago. When, I thought it was the pig man. The pig man. Where? Am I wrong? Was it we talked man? about a pig man or we talked about a talk? I talk about a pig man a lot. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember talking about the dog man. No, so it we, is funny. We, we talked about something in a, in a cemetery that looked like a werewolf Ah, in Lancaster. Yes. Do you remember yes. that now? Yes. Yes, I do. But know. I have never heard you talk about a pig man. So I would love for you to discuss that unless you want to hear my connection to the dog man thing. No, keep going with the dog man. Stay on that. So the dog man is sighted in Kentucky and, and all over the East coast. And I just spoke with Tony Merkel, the host of the confessionals podcast, a very popular paranormal podcast. And he's moving to that area to Tennessee just to be more local to the sort of strangeness that he covers on his podcast. And one of the reasons why he decided to go down there was because a gentleman reached out to him about a sort of mild paranormal sighting. And he was like, yeah, okay, cool, man. Yeah, let's talk. And he has a phone call with him and the guy's like, Hey, you're not recording this. Right. And then Tony's like, yeah, why? And, he goes into telling him this really, really extreme, scary story of an encounter with a dog man. And Tony's like, no, man, you got to tell this story. So they did an episode on it. And the more Tony thought about it, I guess the more he's like, you know, what? I'm going down there. So <laughs> now he put together a whole documentary looking for this dog man. And it's coming out. This month, actually tomorrow, it'll be available on his, like, actually the same day this episode comes out, it'll be available on Tony's website, Merkel Media. But, yeah, I, I just, it's so strange because, you know, these guys that are into the paranormal stuff, a lot of them are, are like, you know, gun-toting kind of dudes who are like, yeah, if these beasts are out there, we're going to shoot them, you know? So your thought is like, oh, they just think these things are our flesh and blood. But what Tony told me yesterday, he's like, man, I'm starting to think these things are really metaphysical. And what he said was, he said when he was out in the woods, he got the thought, like, what if, what if this like dog man thing is actually a person who's like doing some sort of astral projection or some sort of ritual, you know, Tony's a Christian. So like he, he looks at a lot of things from that angle, but he's extremely open-minded for someone who identifies as like a, a Christian, but also paranormal podcaster. Usually they're like, you know, oh, everything's demonic. You know, he's not quite like that. And, and yeah, he's like, you know, I, I thought about it. He's like, what if I shoot this thing and, and it turns into a person, you know, like these stories of werewolf where, you know, in the midnight, they are hairy and nasty and snarling but then when sunrise comes they shrink back into a man you know 
what what, exa- <laughs> what exactly is a skinwalker? Well, I think that would be. Isn't that what he's describing? Is that kind of like what a skinwalker, how it's presented as? I yeah, and that was that would be definitely in the mix because that's right. that's what they talk about is indigenous certain indigenous cultures, not just Southwest Native Americans, or even I think they have them in the Great Lakes region too. Talk of of you know practices where certain shamans or you know spiritual people wild men turn themselves into a beast through some sort mm-hmm. of ritualistic practice you know or, or or even into a bird i mean carlos castaneda's don juan book that's a big part of it is how they you know he teaches carlos how to turn himself his into his astral body you know and, and he right he sees himself as a hawk or he sees himself as a crow or whatever it is So that what what I'm finding interesting, like because I like to, I I like the quote unquote randomness of our conversations, but I always hold on a understanding that there's no randomness at all, and it is it is my job to kind of like see how they connect and see how like this flows in not random order, but this is the most nat everything is connected. So when it seems so. So that's how I like to look at it. And one of the things which so, – so I want to just tie back that story to you know some of these other themes which we've discussed in this conversation today. And a lot has to do with perception and like is it good and it's, or is it bad, whether that be like – it's not me talking about the, the serpents or the serpents are the good guys or the serpents the bad guys. Is Tilakiel the good guy? Is Tilakiel the bad guy? But then it's also like James Shelby Downer. Did he really write it, or is it just like this this phantom version? And Hoffman wrote it, or or and so now now this guy is kind of looking at this, um, looking at the dog man and and all of that sort of stuff. The point I want to bring to this because we also discussed in our conversation something about about this idea of fear. And fear being initiation or being used within initiation, so forth, and particularly to step through to you know the next level, whatever that may mean within a culture. And what was going on in my mind as you're telling the story of this guy who had the scary dogman experience, but he was kind of out looking for it, right? No, the, the the first guy who who approached Tony with the story. He was very hesitant to talk about it because I guess it 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 was not something he was expecting to happen. He was out with his dogs in the woods. He was out with his dogs in the woods, and then Tony was said when you were talking about what if I shoot it and then right. it doesn't material. Yeah, I I apologize. I'm jumping all over the place, and I I hit like the fast forward button through that whole story, but. Yeah, so Tony was inspired to go there himself after hearing how extreme this guy's story. That's where he is now. Yes, in the next month or two, he'll be moving down to that area. All right. So what I'm thinking is, or like the 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 perspective which I'm just kind of looking at the story and looking at everything we're doing. It's going back. We're we're talking about the nature of reality. On a certain level, 
Like if someone can go and be a skinwalker, if someone can go and and do this, if there are serpents of wisdom, like it ultimately begs the question, like, well, how, what is the nature of this reality we're experiencing? Like, if you can go and do that, like, if I could turn into a bird or if I could go and do that, like, you know, how does, what are we looking at? Mm-hmm. And then we're also talking about, about fear and initiations. And I'm going back to the story, in my mind, to the story of the, the, the Freemasonic ritualistic murder, right? And that fit perfectly in the context of my life, in the fact that I've been talking about Freemasons and I do the story and, and that whole and the the reading into being able to go and see deeper levels of of coincidence within things like that. Not everyone sees the world or goes about the world that way. And what happened was I came face to face like reality materialized in such a way that I got where I play. You follow me when I say that? Right. Right. And so now we're listening to this other guy. And this guy is like, he doesn't play necessarily like I do. He's more interested in the paranormal and he's interested in the dog band. He's interested in all of this sort of stuff. And now he's being brought in. And and what I'm what I'm what I'm sensing and thinking and, and playing with is just like this nature of how the reality does it wraps itself around the individual and it meets them where their interest is and then goes through that center of where that fear exists in order for you to then go to the next level. Mm. And so when I describe my story, I can do that because it's my story, but, but there may be a larger, I'm pointing at, at a larger truth and like each person is going to go through their version of it and it has to do with whatever their interest is and whatever their fears are and like going through that in order to then go step to the next level. Hmm. So I'd be very, I'm very curious to hear about, about what, what is discovered or not discovered or not discovered through this experience this guy has moving to Kentucky. Oh, yeah, definitely. And yeah, that'll be all well documented. Tony's very excited to to be making more video documentaries. But what's interesting, going back to my conversation with Nathan and, and this thought that you just provoked in my head of, of and I'm going to paraphrase how I un- interpreted what you said, like when you get into a story, the story becomes part of your life, right? You become a part of the story. This is something we talked about multiple times on the show here. And Nathan very much agreed and resonated with that. And that was a big part of what we talked about. But he brought up this concept that I had never heard before called hyperstition. Have you heard of this concept before? Mm-mm. Go right, go into this. So hyperstition, and I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it, it's the phenomena of when fiction becomes fact meaning that something from the world of human imagination becomes a tangible reality. And Can you give me a, an example? Well, specifically, the example would be, uh, well, let's use the example in the Aztec documentary. What if the ima- cultural imagination for what the Mayan culture was or the Aztec culture was created that sort of thing in the ground and then it was just it was just there like the earth you know birthed it out and that's how they revealed it what if 
And in, in this similar way, you know, if nobody had ever imagined it was there, maybe they wouldn't have have dug, you know. But I, I guess hyperstition, that's, eh, that's, a bad, that's a bad example. Hyperstition is... Would I find hyperstition in Wikipedia? Like, would it have an entry? I don't like, think so. Is it so. that well of an established of a term or concept? No, it, it has a couple archive and website posts, but it's not, no, it's not. Uh, it's not common, because I'm wondering, like, what the people who write and think about it, what they would give for their Wikipedia example. Well, the yeah, closest thing to Wikipedia is Nick Land, an English philosopher and theorist, I guess, talked about this stuff. His work, his writing began to take shape in the 1990s. It's been described as theory fiction, but it, it's sort of this concept that, you know, fiction plays itself out in the real world regardless because you create it in the, it becomes a thing in the imagination, like the tulpa, and then, and then is born. You know, it's like germinated. Like in, in the imaginative realm, and then it's sort of like created in the physical. And which then would go to the eye of, of like the question of like, well, it's, it, it's, these are questions of like the nature of reality, or these are our, our thoughts in terms of, of the nature of reality, because it's like, is he, he's saying that it's an actual thing. Ooh, like here's this a, is how it works. Let me give you an even better. I got a better one for you. Hyperstition is a neologism that combines the word hyper and superstition to describe the action of successful ideas in the arena of culture. It's, it's akin to the concept of memes. Hyperstition works at the deeper evolutionary level of social organization in that they influence the course taken by cultural evolution. Unlike memes, however, hyperstitions describe a specific category of ideas, functioning as magical sigils or engineering diagrams. Hyperstitions are ideas that, once downloaded into the cultural mainframe, engender apocalyptic positive feedback cycles. So I'm still confused as whether, <laughs> like, does he is this looked at as like? Is it is it that this is how they're they're saying that this is how it works, or they're saying like this is just like kind of like a theory to describe something? Like I'm still con uh, confused if this is conceptual or if they're saying that this is a description of a mechanism. It's conceptual. I think it's it's something that this guy Nick Land proposed, and and yeah, Nathan Isaac brought it up as a concept that fits into what he's been experience gotcha gotcha okay so it's like more or less like what i just described it's a naming of that right it's almost like this gotcha, in the same okay. vein as people describe the mandala effect or even synchronicity it's one of right the right okay i gotcha do you did you say you read through the entire the entire secret society and psychological warfare yet are you finished with that no i'm past the fun part in the middle where there's all the pictures though you pass the I'm, fun part of the, yeah. the picture card. I'm like, so, I'm more than halfway through. I'm about three-fourths through. So in the very back, if you look at – I'm pretty certain it's the back. Not the front. <coughs> Excuse me. There is, I think, three or four lines that talks about the word Warwick. Mm, yeah, it says you Wicker Man, Wicker yeah, Man, yeah, Wicked yeah. King, Wicker, Wickle, and Warwick. So, and he talks about that, the, the, the idea of the wicker and the wick and what that means and to bend 
that's what he was talking about is like the bending and the wick and the bending of reality and all that sort of stuff. Right. So I just want to point out that that's where this Nick Land guy, he was, he was a lecturer from the university of Warwick. So I found that was, Oh, wow. I found that was kind of interesting. Are you just looking so, that up right now? Yeah. I'm just looking at it up right now. I pulled that up while we were talking. Yeah. So, all right, my friend, I think that we covered a lot today. <laughs> yes. Is there is there any more? Because I I feel like we should be ra- wrapping up, but I don't want to cut you off. If, no, if no, more. no. I think what would be cool is if we take today's conversation, tie up some loose ends next time, and just kind of both of us already said we we're going to finish watching the Aztec video initially, mm-hmm. and and I'm going to take some more time in this Return of the Serpents of Wisdom book. And let's let's revisit so when, those things. In the in the serpents of wisdom, I would suggest like for you to focus your energy. Look at the look at the part about I don't know if the chapter is called Mesoamerica or if the chapter is called um, the Toltecs, but be certain to read that. And then also read there may there even may, may be an index. If, there, if there's an index, look for Tula, and then also look look at the Rosicrucians in there too. All right. Cool. Well, thank All right, you, Mike. Mark. Appreciate it. Another good conversation in the bag. Anything you want to tell the listeners before we go? Thank you for listening. You know, it's, it's, I, I feel like there's a whole bunch of new stuff, which I'm about to start working on, or I've been working on it, but start releasing it. And so I'm excited for that. And, and Awesome. And please do send me that video that you're going to publish today. Send me the link and we'll put it in the episode description for this episode. So folks can go and check that out because I think the these two things will release on the same day. So Yeah. And any of you folks who are in the Baltimore area, if you want to come by and check out the place, send me an email. I've already had like five or six people come by and do that. It's been uh, a lot of fun meeting people face-to-face. I'm calling it a Moose Conference. Right on. A Moose? Yeah. M-O-O-Z. Okay. Back reverse of Zoom. Because <laughs> we're doing it. We're doing it. We're doing it the real. I love it. It kind of sounds like Muse. Right. It sounds like Muse. Love it. All right. Cool, man. All right, Mark. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening, folks. Peace out.